This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt and Dr. Matt here along with Cole and Terry. The gang is gathered. Jeff is out on uh, on assignment. That's what we're calling it? That's We've what we're calling officially it. officially deemed it an official Matt Townsend assignment in the field. No, it's. I think he self-assigned it and uh, just didn't show up. Oh, okay. But we knew he wouldn't show up, so it's not like it took us by surprise. Surprise assignment. But it's not. He's not sick anymore, which is good. Yes. And I keep dodging the flu. Man, I keep hearing more and more uh, deaths, children dying of this flu. This flu is out there. Be careful, folks. Don't risk it. Don't push it. It's the last thing we need. We can also talk about the day three of the shutdown. If you are keeping score, it's day two, 10 hours into it, seven minutes and seven seconds. 10 hours. So technically it's shut. Oh, because Eastern Standard Time, it's yeah. shut down at midnight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the shutdown is underway. Um, today also is the day you find out if you are an essential employee of the government or a non-essential. And uh, that started an incredible discussion last week about this, our very own show, Who Are the Essentials? Because And what we found out, really, the most essential person for the Matt Townsend show is Cole. Yes. Right? Because uh, without Cole, the, the show's not going out on the air. Mm-hmm. So We can do the Matt Townsend show without Matt Townsend. Absolutely. We've done that before. And then the second most essential person we found out was Terry, because then Terry puts together the show. So Terry and Cole are the essentials, and I am a non-essential. So in the event that we have a shutdown, I will just stay home, and you two would need to carry the show. All right, great. Now that we've got that established? Yeah. Um, so much else we could be talking about, uh, including, obviously, the flu virus, including who's going to be most blamed for the shutdown. It just depends where you go for your sources and for your information. Fox News would say the Dems are to blame. CNN might, I guess, be saying Republicans are to blame. In the end, many are saying the president is to blame. Including a 2013 interview that keeps showing. If you yeah. look on social media or whatever, there's these videos that keep playing right. of yeah. President Trump then blaming just citizen Trump. Trump blaming <laughs> President Obama saying, well, he's the guy in charge. Yeah. When there's a shutdown, it all goes back to the guy in charge, and that's the president. Uh, why did he do that interview? Blasted. Well, uh, some of the things I heard over the weekend was that when uh, Joe Cannon we had last hour kind yeah. of alluded to this was it's kind of inconclusive as to what the effect of a shutdown does on the popularity rating or electability of a specific party. Like, is, does that carry over till November? Yeah. Um, and what they what they found is that it usually has a bump similar to one of these uh, party uh, conventions during an election oh, year. Yeah. You have a Democratic convention. They come out of the convention. There's like a two or three point bump, maybe a five point bump, Who? and then within a couple of weeks, it's gone. It's gone. So, right? so, so the, but the bump would, I guess, be because the GOP is in charge of the Senate. They're in charge of. Uh, they, they have all. They basically have every leadership position in D.C. Right. So the the GOP would suffer a little bump. And then would it disappear? It's inconclusive if that has Mm -hmm. any effect. What they did find is that 
in 2013, the re- Republicans tried and lost. Yeah. And then that sort of buoyed them up for the elections yeah. coming up, and they, you know, made some big gains in that election, that upcoming election. Well, year, and so. this is a big deal because normally the Democrats would win, uh, have some, some upswing in the midterm election. Yeah. But what if this changes the 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 impact of that? What if it's not as big of an upswing? Right. What if the blue? What are they calling it? The blue wave is just really a blue. It was frothy. It was more purple. Mm. Kind of in the middle. Yeah. Some, but not as much as they were hoping. A purple wave. Well, we wish them all the best of luck. Today, sometime around noon mm. Eastern, yep. which is right now, uh, well, you know, in about it's, a couple hours, yeah. um, it's going to, they're going to solve it. Well, there will be a vote. Yeah. Will cooler heads prevail? I don't know if they've got enough out of this yet. Well, no, that, you still got to get your bases yeah. all riled up. Like, look, we're 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 defending DACA, and the Democrats yeah. are like, "Yeah, stand up right. for us." And Republicans are like, "We're not giving up on immigration." We, right, yeah, we're we defending can... the little the children and the chip program. And now they're they're saying that the Democrats don't want to protect the kids. Yeah, uh, the the Trump campaign yeah. put out a commercial over the weekend saying that Democrats are um, complicit with murder. Because oh, wow. of their stance on uh, border security. That was the ad that put out. Wow. And then that was like Saturday into Sunday. And then Sunday on some of the interview shows, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, he goes, I don't think that was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> you accuse the other party yeah. of essentially murder. Because of their choices that you're complicit in murder. Ugh. Not helpful yeah. for the discussion. Right. That was your response. It's like, plus, good job, Paul Ryan. Plus, the White House uh, switchboard has a message yep. on it basically saying, we're not able to answer the phones because the Democrats are forcing some disconnected, disjointed policy that to be part of the spending plan. And because of that, they shut down government. And at the end, it says, no, it doesn't. But it should say, have a happy day. Because that's what all <laughs> those messages say. Interesting stuff. The flu, again, is now um, it's widespread in 49 states, all except Hawaii. Yep. Uh, 30 children have died because of this. The season total of laboratory-confirmed conf- uh, cases has the season total at about 74,500 people mm. that have contracted the flu. Mm. An additional 10 flu-related deaths have been reported during the week of January 13. That is just – so if you're – a uh, senior, a uh, senior citizen. If you, uh, you know, if you're not healthy anyway, if you're a child, uh, we need to be watching out for these people, folks. They, they might need special attention. So check in on your family, your neighbors, those that are around you. Let's uh, let's make sure everybody's protected there. And let's get to the headlines now with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina targeted White House policy advisor Stephen Miller as an unproductive force in the immigration fight that has been at the center of the government shutdown debate. As long as Stephen Miller is in charge of negotiating immigration, we are going nowhere, Graham said to reporters while wearing a very distinctive red hat that was not a Make America Great Again no. hat, but it looked kind of like, wow, you look kind of disheveled for a Sunday <laughs> afternoon, sir, that when Senator is in session. But you know, It's like he had I'm just been out judge. shoveling his walks. Yeah, I was like, wow, they catch him on the lawn? Uh, Graham noticed that uh, President Trump's heart is on the, right, on the right issue, but that Miller's restrictive immigration views have never been in the mainstream in the Senate and has made him an outlier for years. Wasn't Miller a Bannon pick? He was actually a uh, assistant or staffer to Jeff Sessions. 
Ah. And so when Sessions become, became the attorney general, then uh, Stephen Miller was able to get on with Bannon, and they had similar yeah. views. And, and he's been gaining power as others have been leaving the White House. Right. But maybe he you know, got in the way on this one. Yeah. Mm. And apparently most things. Okay. I've heard a lot of comments about how he's not helpful. Really? Because he doesn't try to... He's, negotiate. He's, he just tells you this is what we're doing, and then just digs in his heels. And yeah. you can't do that when there's other ideas in this country other than right. yours. Well, especially when you bring Democrats to a meeting. Yeah, you know everyone's got to talk, and that's that's the whole meeting where apparently the president said some really yeah inappropriate things. And then the meeting there was a meeting a couple weeks beforehand with uh, Diane Feinstein that was on TV. Yeah, that was in over the. I, I read this but over he, the weekend. Yeah, and he nailed, but he did really well in that meeting, right? He just he didn't. Well, he, he, it was interesting because Feinstein asked him, "Can we have a clean DACA bill?" And the president said, "That sounds like a great idea." And then you get uh, McCarthy, who's a uh, a uh, Republican in the Senate, yes. saying, "Oh, President, sir, President, um, that you that's not exactly how we've discussed things. We want an immigration. We want a security component with the DACA." And he goes, "I think that's what." And the president asks, says that I think that's what she's saying. And they're like, "No, no, no, that's not what Senator <laughs> Feinstein said." Well, after the cameras turned off, that yeah. meeting that was televised on cable for fifty minutes, it was turned off. They had a list of talking points provided by the White House as saying this is what the White House wants. And President Trump's like, I don't even know what this list is. Who wrote this up? Why is this in the room? Who brought this list? So just being on the same page yeah. when it comes to what the White House wants yeah. versus what the president thinks he wants has been a challenge. That's it. That, that's probably maybe that's why. Uh, maybe that's why they're saying they think his heart is pure, like he right. wants something, but for some reason his it, it team's seem, not. Getting it seems it. like there's another force working as the president's talking to you. There's something else over here telling you this is what the it's White not House Melania, wants to do. Is it? No, she's she's taking care of cyberbullying. Um, as the government shuts down, drama unfolds on Capitol Hill. Republicans in the White House keep pounding Democrats with a two-pronged argument. Democrats are supporting legal immigrants, and they don't want ne- to negotiate with the minority or the minority party on that issue while the government remains closed, saying it would be a tantamount to allowing hostage-taking. So far, neither line of attack is working. Democrats showed little sign of budging on the first day after federal funding ran dry, but the rhetoric is growing ever more heated as each side seeks to land on the side uh, just the right message that will allow them to prevail in the battle for public opinion. So it's legal immigrants versus, uh, or illegal immigrants versus Trump chaos. Wow. Is kind of the messaging from both sides. Yeah. And that's that's what I, I get frustrated at is there's a bigger issue. The government's closed because of what you're doing and you're worrying about your PR messaging yeah. at the moment. We have We have people that can't go to work today. Yeah. I mean, and that's these are people that have been serving forever, and and they're acting like it's a moral cause that they're the sacrifice is being made for these people and their livelihoods at the moment. But it just turns into your political party and where you're positioning for November. Yeah, come on, come on, you can do that all year. You don't need to do that. That's now. right. President Trump uh, has put Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross out to pasture. Says some headlines. <laughs> <laughs> Ross's efforts to wheel and deal with the Chinese have left the president unimpressed. Another problem, he keeps falling asleep in meetings, apparently. Really? When they were, remember when Trump went to Saudi Arabia and they had the huge yeah. presentations and all this? There were se- several uh, trade meetings that were happening. And there's this photograph. Ivanka is sitting there and then some other uh, government people. And yeah. then Wilbur Ross is just nodding off on the side. And he's the commerce secretary. 
yeah, that's but, his whole job is trade, right? But we've talked a lot on the show about the importance of a good nap in the middle of your meeting. Yeah, he's also the Trump's not really impressed with some of his, his efforts with some trade deals that oh, were done. Yeah, so then Trump undercut his efforts in front of the foreign. Uh, dignitaries oh, that are wow. negotiating yeah, with Ross, so they're all of a sudden they're like, "So he's not the guy we're talking to; it's somebody else." But so. the rule is, you always undercut him when he's asleep. Also, two weeks ago, Ryan Zinke, he's the Interior Secretary, made an announcement that surprised the White House. Uh, they announced that uh, all the waterways around the country, all the coastlines, yeah. will be yeah. open for drilling. And then Zinke came out after after a few days and went, "Oh, except for Florida, except for Florida, where we have Florida. a big election coming. Florida, we're going to pull that back. Uh, yeah, there's a big election there. Well, he never passed that through the White House. Uh-oh. There's laws that make it so that you can't just snap your fingers and pull back on drilling rights, or when you make a declaration, just stop because it's unfair to everyone in the entire country. Yeah, right. Because now it opens up the White House for lawsuits from every other state that doesn't want drilling in their waters. <laughs> so they're not happy with what he did there. Okay. So, commerce and interior, both secretaries. Eh. Yeah, but so so he may. Yeah, he'll he'll clean house. He's not afraid. He's not afraid to do over. No. So we'll see. That's good. Um, and uh, so over the weekend, I, we spent a lot of time on the show. Probably too much time talking about Oreos. Yeah, yeah, we do. Actually. But but I, I think it's for a good cause. What's the cause? They're good. <laughs> oh, that's the cause. That's okay. The cause. In fact, this I weekend you were talking about a charity. Found some hazelnut. Flavored oh, Oreos? Yeah. Kind of wish they had a little bit more of the hazelnut more flavor. More hazel than nut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe a, a direct like sponsorship with a Nutella would have been a better approach to this. Really? But they made their own hazelnut. Yeah, I, I don't saw know. those on the shelf. It's and not I bad. I chose not to take them. My wife is in the middle of a uh, diet program. She's trying to focus. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, I, I think I want some Pringles. And I walked down there. No, no, no. Oh, wife, wife's trying to focus. Job. I'm going to do this for her. Yeah. Walk down to the next aisle with hazelnut Oreos. Oh, Absolutely. those she'll like. It's a nut. You're supposed to have nuts in the diet. Yeah. So I told her, I'm sorry. I, w- I was thinking of you on one aisle and then definitely not thinking of you the next aisle. Yeah. Well, I found this. What? Amazon has a club subscription service for Oreo cookies. Really? Do we need that? So you can get subscriptions for basically like all kinds of things. Beauty products, you can get books. Yeah, socks. Um, my, my kids get boxes with like toys and like learning supplies and stuff in them, which is, you know, they're all excited because there's just box that shows up and it has cool stuff in it. Well, now there's a cookie club. Each box comes with uh, two Oreo snacks, either cookies or candy bars, because they're into both now. Mm-hmm. A mix of old favorites and new innovations. So oh, you don't wow. have to buy like the whole pack. They give you like a sample pack of the new stuff. Oh, okay. That I guess that's good. Yeah, so you get a little taste. Uh, Oreo-inspired gift and a recipe card. Uh, Ways you can innovate Oreos into other food, like desserts. And, um, yeah. But... It's. I mean, this makes sense. Like if it's Star Wars, and you're so into Star Wars, you want everything. But there's, these are Oreos. These Oreo are cookies. Hats and mugs and games that are involved in all Paraphernalia. this. Paraphernalia. All kinds of stuff. Are, Swag. Are people that into Oreos? I guess a 12 month subscription is. What would be too much money? Do you think? Five dollars. Five is too. What about twenty for 12 months? Oh yeah, twenty total. Yeah, twenty bucks for or 12 twenty bucks months. a month. Well, let's let's see. It's a probably... three, six, or twelve month subscription with each factoring out to about twenty bucks a box. So it's twenty bucks a, a month. Yeah, not worth it. That's too much. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, per box. So I yeah, only yeah, get yeah. a one box a month. Yeah. Yeah, not worth it. It doesn't mm. tell you how many, how much. I mean, uh, you on really got a lot. I mean, get, but... yeah. I mean, it, yeah, not. And worth do it. all these? Okay, so all of Amazon's 
um, conciliary yeah, subscription yeah. things come in addition to Amazon Prime, right? Like you have to be a Prime member to be an Oreo Cookie Club member. Uh, to it, be doesn't, a, it doesn't say that. I don't know. Probably. But you'd pro- or mm-hmm. pay more. They yeah. keep messing with Prime, so probably. But yeah. it's all everything. The fix is in on every aspect of life. But there is a box that you can get every month. That they just send you cookies. Really? You yeah. Not, you know what? I the think future is great. Maybe get another hobby. They just put out spicy cinnamon Oreos. They were hot and spicy cinnamon Oreos. I saw those there. I'm like, yeah, I don't want those. Yeah. I'm, those don't seem like a good uh-huh. flavor to me. Maybe what you could do yeah? uh, is get a dog. Nah. Dogs are cheaper. Um, did you hear this latest research? Apparently, humans love dogs more than people. Yeah, I believe it. If, it's getting to the point now where... Um, you 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 get a story about like human is abused versus a animal is abused, and the yeah. animal almost has it seems like there's oh, yeah. more compassion that direction oh, yeah. than towards the human. No, absolutely. I've yeah. been waiting for the hero of the day to turn into just dog of the day for well, a while. Well, <laughs> we had one of those, and I kind of backed away. Uh, two major studies showed that mankind has more empathy for pooches in dire circumstances than suffering people. There you go. According to the Times of London, a U.K. medical research uh, study that was researching charity, they staged two phony donation campaigns, one for a dog and the other featuring a man. And, of course, the pooch drew more contributions. Hmm. Would you give five pounds to save Harrison from a slow, painful death? The separate ad said, featuring a canine and a human named Harrison. And then a Northeastern study showed that only a baby human could compete with man's best friend. So a baby. A baby we have more compassion for than maybe even a toddler. Wow. I mean, dogs are beautiful. Right. Yeah, at what age do humans become less than dogs? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the next study. Students were uh, shown fake newspaper clippings about a baseball bat attack on a puppy and an adult dog, a year-old infant and a 30-year-old adult. Hmm. They were asked questions to gauge their empathy, and the adult finished in last place in sympathy. Hmm. So a puppy, an adult dog... And a one-year-old child all would garner more sympathy than a 30-year-old adult. From a baseball bat attack, though, I think a 30-year-old adult can handle being hit with a bat more than a, a poor little dog. Wow, that is uh, – It's a dog, It's Matt. kind of a sad day, though. But, I mean, yeah, it's dogs are helpful. a good day helpful. for the dog listeners here on the Matt Townsend well, Show. The other thing is these are obviously uh, – the world – you haven't lived in a country, a third world country, because in a third world country, dogs don't have as much empathy. We don't have as much empathy for those dogs because, you know, they're feral and they're running around the street and it's it's crazy. But, boy, what's happening when we don't even hmm, worry? But they're dogs. Uh, yeah, but the other person's a human. But it's a dog. It's got four legs. And it's furry. And I love dogs. You're, you're making my argument for me. I know. It's just something's not right. Hmm. Well, do something about it. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how story time with your children may turbocharge their brain development. Pretty awesome research as we uh, understand best how to, uh, how to engage our children and light them up mentally.
It turns out that one of the more overlooked parts of parenting is actually one of the most important to a child's development. New research shows that reading with your child before bedtime can seriously stimulate the brain development. It also shows that there are a few things parents can do to make story time even better for their children. Here to speak with us today is the lead researcher of that study, Dr. John Hutton. John is a pediatrician and clinical researcher at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. By the way, he also owns a children's bookstore and has written 24 children's books. John, thank you for being with us today. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Man, you've been busy researching, (laughs) being a pediatrician, and writing uh, kids' books. Talk to us. I mean, I think we all intuitively get that, you know, there's some magic that can take place when we're reading with our children. But what is your research telling us about how it helps with healthy brain development? Uh, It's it's a really exciting time. I mean, I think that... um, that the work we're doing at Cincinnati Children's is really um, applying new technologies, specifically MRI, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, to really explore what's going on in the brains of, of, of kids. Um, and most of my work is three- to five-year-old kids um, to really help them um, help, help build healthy networks to, so that they can learn to read and um, be more excited about reading. But really, what we particularly look at is what, what's go, what things in the home in those early years can really help promote um, healthy brain development and, and we're better understanding what parts of the brain are actually involved. So when, when we're reading with our kids, um, what, what is the, what, what makes it healthy for them? Is it just the reading or uh, does more need to be involved than just them listening to a story? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, components to it. And, and, and really, this, this is the kind of thing that, you know, any, any grandparent would probably tell you, well, I always knew that, you know, but, but we're actually using this, you know, sort of high-tech scientific ways to sort of look at it. But um, different aspects involved, you know, first of all, your access to books is critical. You know, kids, in order to read books, kids need to, need to have books. And, you know, a lot of kids are fortunate enough to have, you know, have books at home and, and some don't in their programs to help them. But um, and then from there, it's, it's how often reading occurs. You know, the, re- the routines in the home are incredibly important, um, starting from, you know, the American Academy of, Academy of Pediatrics recommends starting as soon as possible after birth, you know, just establishing those daily routines of reading, very important. And then that helps build interest in reading, creating the sense that reading is a, is a fun thing to do, that, that's, a, that's a very loving and nurturing experience that, that kids you know, really learn to appreciate. And then, then the interactive aspect of reading is very important as well, getting kids involved. And whether that's just holding the book when they're little or actually asking questions and answering questions and trying to read the words themselves. Well, it really is. I mean, it, it is a special moment. And if you've had a child and ever sat with a child or a grandchild or any child, really, and and have a chance to interact with them on a book, it's powerful. You really can see their mind working. Um, does it? What What's actually happening as we are, you know, getting them into the book, letting them turn the pages, as we are maybe changing our voices for the in, in the book? What What's going on in the child's brain? Oh, it's uh, so much. Probably more than we can ever ever appreciate. I think I think starting, you know, with with younger babies, you know, before they're really talking, they're really just appreciating that sense of being held and loved and hearing their you know, their parent or grandparent or other caring grown-ups voice, um, that helps them to, to build their language skills. You know, the more words kids hear, the more that they learn and the more they eventually can say and read. So the, the early experience is about nurturing and language. And then from there, it's sort of understanding how the books work, you know, holding the book, turning the pages, they're building those fine motor skills. 
and then it's it's an increasingly more complex understanding of 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 how a story structure occurs you know sentences to the whole plot and the story the characters and all these things involve different parts of the brain different networks in the brain that are sort of wired together at different critical times in development um, one of the really fascinating things about reading is that the, the brain does does not naturally know how to read the process of of reading involves sort of integrating and knitting together these older parts of the brain that 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 evolved for for vision and language and and attention and and really putting those together at these in, in these first five years of life or, or or so to to create an actual reading brain network and and the more kids are read to the healthier that network is. Hmm. That really, I, I, it didn't dawn on me that so many things like even the motor skills or the physical skills of being able to just handle a book, manage a book. Um, was was such a was such a big issue there? Is it, uh, it? Do you see anything different going on with reading today, as we now have all of these other electronic devices and and technology? It seems like it might be easier for a child to just watch a movie than actually go engage the work of a book, and that might dissuade them from getting into books. Is technology stealing the time and the place of books? Uh, you bring up a huge issue, a very, very important one. I'm glad you did. Um, the the issue with technology, I mean, so much has developed so fast in the in the high tech arena that that we're creating these you know these portable gadgets and other things that are that are being advertised as as teaching kids things, teaching them how to you know language and other skills. And um, the, the issue is that, that you know that that before age two, you know, children really don't. I mean, they'll be engaged by screens. They like to watch it. They think it's interesting, but they really don't learn much from it. Um, the first two years of life is really critical to have a human caregiver actually, you know, talking to the child, working with the child, and something and something hardwired in the brain really um, it, that there's a trigger that, that that tells them if a if a grown up that I care about is talking to me, I need to pay attention, and that's where learning happens. The the biggest risk with the devices is taking the grown up out of the picture. Um, there's a temptation to sort of hand over the device, click a button, and mm-hmm. and it's it's making noises and, and telling story. But anytime you take the grown up out of the picture, it it minimizes the learning experience and 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 removes the possibility of of talking about what's going on in the story, relating the story to the child's life, and that sense of being cared for. I think so. The more more people are involved, the better. That's great. And I guess it doesn't. Does it matter if it's? Can it be anybody, or does it matter yeah. that it's a parent? I think it can be anybody. I think it's as long as it's a grown up that that really is engaged with the child, um, and is is really willing to put that time in and interact with them, um, and the child um, trusts and cares about. And then it's it's you know it can be any family member. It could be a teacher. You know, um, yeah. That's interesting too. That, like, I remember uh, my kids would want to read the same book over and over again, and as an adult, my head was like, "Oh, come on, let's get some, <laughs> let's, let's get some diversity in here." Does it does it matter if they're reading the same thing over and over again? Should we be mixing it up a bit? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think and your children do definitely love to read the book same book over and over again, especially in that, you know. Uh, two- to three-year-old period where, where they're not really reading the book. They basically are memorizing the book and then and telling it back and sort of pretending like they're actually doing the reading. Children like to develop a sense of mastery. Hmm. So when they read the book over and over, they're, they're practicing and they're saying, look, I can do this, you know, by, by doing the same one. But then, you, you know, you do work in other new books and expose them to new characters and new situations, and that'll help with that learning process as well. 
you said uh, to to start it early. Uh, how early is too early? So it's. Um, I mean, again, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends from as soon as possible after after birth, which seems crazy to a lot of parents. They say, you know, my child is barely able to sit up on my lap. Why why would I read to them? Yeah. And that that's really mostly about just creating the healthy habit. You know, the sort of spending time together, slowing down unplugging and just sitting on the lap and and just looking at the pictures in a book and just to share that experience. And then as the child gets older, they can participate more actively. Um, So I say as early as as possible, but being realistic about what the child's going to get out of it, you know, that early on it really is mostly about the the ritual of spending time together, which is increasingly important these days when parents have a hard time slowing down and and taking that time to put their phones away and share a book with a child. It's so true. uh, It seems like as parents we may do a lot of things to undermine the actual experience. What are some other things we should make sure we're not doing during the, the reading experience so that they can take advantage of it? I think it's it's really important to keep the reading experience fun, um, you know, to to not have the child feel pressure that this is for you know, for testing. I think a lot of kids develop that sense that reading is something that they do at school and it's hard and it's you know it's 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 a more of a chore. Um, to to really just keep it as lighthearted as possible, letting the child participate and ask questions and talk about their favorite characters and animals and everything, and make it a loving, fun experience. Um, parents can also model reading at home by reading themselves. You know, we know that kids that grow up in homes where they see their parents reading as opposed to checking their phones or doing watching TV or whatever, they're going to want to do what their parents are doing or their caregivers are doing. Mm. So being good role models in that respect is really important, I think. It, and um, It kind of never – I mean, it seems like parenting 101. As a pediatrician, I'm sure you you see it a lot. It, but you started the whole thing talking about access and – I mean, some families grew up in in homes where there there wasn't access to books, but also there wasn't there wasn't a parent that did this. They 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 don't even have a habit or the routine of reading and reading in the home. Um, talk about routines and and the importance of routines for our children. Yeah, that that's really really important. The um... And you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, some children are very fortunate to grow up in homes where reading is valued and, and, and they have lots of readers around, lots of books around. But, you know, a lot of kids don't. I mean, a, a, a huge number, you know, um, grow up with uh, no books at home and, mm. and parents that struggle to read themselves. And, um, you know, it's, it's I think in, in my work in pediatrics, you know, we really we know some programs that we use in our clinic. There's one called Reach Out and Read. There's one called Imagination Library that that are these great programs that help kids get get access to books and and, and more reading guidance. But um, you know, I, I try to re- reassure parents who who are a little more um, unsure about reading that that aren't as confident. A lot of parents who are concerned they won't do it right and. Um, and just to, even if they have struggled with reading the words, to read the pictures. You know, one of the nice things about children's books is they they have pictures, and you can you can spend you go through a whole book and not read a single word on the page, and just talk about what's going on in the pictures with the child, and that's really valuable. Yeah, and you're modeling for them what the book is, and and and, and the idea of the story, and that spending time together. So yes, that's important. What I mean. Um... Uh, part of this, again, I guess, is just engaging the child at whatever level they are, right? So if they, if it's just visual, then engage and talk visually. If if they can get into right. the words, if they can get into the patterns, I mean, there's 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 I guess there's no end to the levels and benefits of reading or going through books. You're absolutely right. Um, I mean, 
one of the great things about books is, is I mean, they have, they're full of words, they're full of ideas, full of concepts, pictures. But more than anything, they're, they're a wonderful, we call it a catalyst. There's something that really helps bring grown-ups and kids together to spend time together, just sharing in whatever it is they bring to it, their, their life experience. I mean, a book might lead into a, to a story about, you know, when a grandparent was overseas or, or, or something, a, something a, a parent liked to do when they were little and, and just that opportunity to talk and, and spend time together and, um, and then hopefully lead into reading the stories and, and, and developing a love of reading that helps in school. But yeah. um, no, I yeah. notice it with my own kids. If I break into a story from like like we might read scriptures at night and when we're reading scriptures at night, if I break into a story and start telling something that happened to me, it's it really is. One, it's the, it seems like the only time I have their attention is when I'm Absolutely. telling a story about my, me or my wife and um, or my wife's telling a story. It really stories are a, a very easy access to the the mind and heart of our children. Yeah, I think that's how humans have always understood the world. I mean, they've told each other stories, and the stories have been written down, and, and that's what books are, essentially, is they're, they're ways to better understand the world through through the words and, and, and that whole narrative. But, um, yeah, my daughter's 12 now, and she reads better than I do, probably, but we still read together every night because I think we like the we like the time to just slow down and spend time together and talk about what's going on. So it's a, it's a great excuse to spend that time together. Absolutely. What, what made you, uh, John, I mean, it's hard to become a doctor. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of effort. And then on top of all of this, you open a bookstore as well. What, what drives a pediatrician to open a, a bookstore, a children's bookstore? Yeah, so so our our bookstore is this little um, little store called Blue Manatee in Cincinnati, and it's a it was really um, we didn't plan on opening a bookstore. It was a little store in our neighborhood that was going out of business in about 2001. And my wife and I, she was a, she was a Montessori teacher, I was a, a doctor, and, and we didn't like we didn't want to see it go. So we actually went into their going out of business sale, had a conversation with the owner, signed a contract in green crayons, they could <laughs> take over the store and just to keep it alive and. And we see it more as a as a mission than anything else. Yeah. It's just, it's, I think it really represents something we think is important. You know, the, the holding a child's hand, walking down to the bookstore, looking at books together, picking out the books, and and taking them home and reading them. And um, you know, we've been fortunate that our community um, supports that and and allows us to keep the lights on. And and it fuels the work I do at at the hospital as well because it helps me to see families that have access to books and reading, and then it helps me to look and think about, well, what, what can we do to help families that don't, um, which is more the families that I, that I work with in my clinics. So, Were you an author? Were you an author of children's books before you bought uh, The Blue Manatee, or was it which came first? Um, I was an author after. I, I, my, my interest in, in writing, I've always loved to write, but um, a lot of the books that I write have um, health-related themes to them. You know, they're, they're children's books, but there's a, um, there's a series I wrote called Baby Unplugged, which was inspired by the idea of helping kids unplug from their devices and, and do and, and to really celebrate things that are fun in the, in the real world, like, you know, playing with balls and playing with pets and going outside in the yard. And so a lot of the books that I write tend to have that that sort of mission behind them too of, of, of all the work that I do. And um, I've been fortunate that I've just been able to, to keep, keep going and, and developing more concepts and ideas and things that I think are fun to write. And I think, I think it all works together. I mean, it definitely keeps me pretty busy, but I, um, you know, I think the uh, work being in the store and doing the research and the writing all kind of 
you know, creates a lot of positive energy that keeps, that keeps me going and keeps me excited. Absolutely. What, uh, what would you say, John, is, the, is uh, the biggest takeaway? If there's one thing that we could all do as parents, as uh, grandparents even, just community members to make sure that our kids are getting and deriving the benefits of reading, what would that one thing be? I think it's to, to keep the experience uh, fun and interactive, you know, to get the children involved early, early on, just, you know, whether it's holding the book, participating in the story, asking questions, just slowing, to, slowing down to spend time really enjoying the book by letting the child be actively involved, and that'll help them to be more excited about it and, and um, feel like they're really, you know, appreciated and, and, and getting a lot out of the process. Good stuff. Dr. John Hutton, thank you so much for your great work. Again, uh, Dr. John Hutton is the lead researcher uh, on on this study we've been talking about. He's a pediatrician and researcher at Cincinnati's Children's Hospital. Also owns the Blue Manatee Bookstore in Cincinnati. And uh, and remember, here at BYU Broadcasting, we have a we have a show that's on regularly. Worlds Awaiting with the host Rachel Wadham, where they talk about different books and they help you as parents engage and understand how better to engage your children on um, on different books and subjects. It's one you're going to want to check into. Just go to byuradio.org to look that up. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, it's interesting. We, um, we have children. We work for our children. We get up early every day, go kill ourselves to bring home the bacon. We clean the house. We do all of these things, and yet finding enough time to sit down and read with our kids seems like a major difficulty. Isn't it funny where we, um, we know what's essential in our lives? We, we say we know what's essential, but if you knew that you could turbocharge your child's brain by reading with them every day for 30 minutes. Oh, boy, that's a lot of time, Matt. I mean, I mean, I, what about The Bachelor? When would we watch The Bachelor? And I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, except I know I don't uh, read it with my kids like I need to. And um, it's it's hard. And yet it's so valuable. I think it's easy with the first kid. Our first child, we read, everybody read to my, my first child. My second child even got some attention. But my fifth and sixth children, eh, half the time we wonder if they're even home. And so just think about it. A little coach's corner. One of the things I wanted to talk about is it's uh, in the end, it really is the little things that might come from something like reading that might create a little more discipline in your child, might allow them the the tenacity, the ability to to put their phone down and to actually seek after something um, that, that might bring more insight, more understanding. It might also help them obviously uh, – with their ability to focus, their ability to to focus their attention on something. So it is a simple, simple little solution that might go a very, very long way. And it also could be, I believe, integrated into what we call family rituals. Maybe part of the ritual would be simply how we decide as a family to go to bed 
And, um, you know, if we could have a little bit of time, family time, uh, doing whatever, whether it's reading or praying or talking, um, we also have talked about on the show over and over the power of the family meal. And if you families that eat together and have a consistent dinner time where everyone's home and they, they spend that time eating without their cell phones on, just the the wonderful blessings that are there um, as far as the child's ability to feel like they're a member of a group and a team or their family, their ability to um, say no to other things uh, and, and live a healthier life, have more self-discipline. Lots of benefits come out of just the family meal. But what about the family reading time? I mean, if you have younger kids, maybe it's time to open up a series of books. And as a family, let's read that series together. The benefit is if you if you can just get everybody hooked into a story, we could turn technology off and spend a half hour uh, a night reading that. Or you can even make uh, any kind of story time more exciting or fun by having people play parts, giving everybody a different role to play, or acting out the scene, or spending a little time before you start this next uh, section that you're reading and talking about what we're going to read, then read it, and then spend some time talking about what what we read. Another rule I've seen with my kids is keeping it short. I have found a 15-minute to 20-minute lesson is so much more valuable than a 40-minute lesson where they're frustrated the entire time. So if I could give them time to wiggle and fun and have fun and wrestle and do what they need, and then we throw together a really solid 15-minute moment, there's power in that. Uh, a lot of times, too, I've even, I've even just seen it in teaching in church or teaching a youth group somewhere. If I can just let them kind of relax and be themselves for half of the time that we're together, they will generally give me the other half to influence them deeply. And you'll, you'll know you're influencing them because they'll be engaged. But let's remember, family is – it's about – really, it's about this ability to connect and relate to each other. It's about allowing the family to go where the family needs to go. And sometimes as parents, we're so dead set on it having to be our agenda, our time frame, um, instead of being a little bit more dynamic. And if we could teach our kids the power and the ability to handle dynamic times – we might set them up for success. Not everything goes on schedule. Not everything is perfectly black and white. And this might be a wonderful time to create some more resilience in your kids as you talk about the less black and white scenarios of life. Anyway, it's just reading time, right? Or it's some type of family time. I challenge all of us to, uh, to find that time today. And let's, let's, let's see if we can't habitualize it by making it a time that we can work together every day at the same time, 9 o'clock, every night, we're going to have family time. Or 9.30, when we go to bed, it's going to, we're going to go down and, and we're going to read a book together this way. It's just it's basics, right? Family Basics 101. Doing what we can on the program to help you live a healthier life as a family and to be the good in the world. We'll continue the journey in just a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hey, uh, lots of news, uh, and a lot of the news you may not even hear about. Um, how about a customer attacks a Waffle House worker because they wanted the thermostat turned down? Seems reasonable. Yeah, I mean, you know how you get when you're eating your waffles and chicken and it's just too hot? Yes. So you're like, I can't. I You got to turn it down. Three customers were caught on video attacking a Tennessee Waffle House employee on New Year's Eve after they wanted the thermostat adjusted. The woman who shot the video, who did not wish to be named, said that the two adults and a 16-year-old walked into the eatery about 1.30 p.m. They complained it was too hot in the restaurant and asked that the temperature be turned down. The 21-year-old worker who was uh, sweeping the floor said she would, a- she would ask the manager – and then one of the women didn't like the answer and instead started punching the employee. Yeah. I mean, hello. I just and, – and who says you have the right to just walk in anywhere, not just punch anyone, but to move the thermostat? Right. In my house. You could choose to just walk away, leave. Right. I choose how hot and cold to keep my house because I live there. Yeah. Right. When I invite guests over, they can make suggestions that I will promptly ignore. Right. And keep it the temperature I like. See, this is this is where people think that the customer's always right. Eh. But maybe not. There's other people in the in the Waffle House and maybe they like it the temperature that it is. By the way, the employee who was the victim of the attack was not seriously injured, so police are now investigating. Another uh, crazy story, a man used bank robbery cash to buy an engagement ring. For his fiance, authorities say a man robbed a bank in Ohio, used the money to buy his fiance an engagement ring. 36-year-old Dustin Peterson has been charged with robbing a Fifth Third Bank branch in Trenton on December 16th. Police say the records show that Peterson spent 4500 bucks on an engagement ring less than an hour after the robbery. Well, what do they say? Like half a month's salary or two months' salary? Whatever it's that, supposed yeah, to be. Is that it? Well, man, that's – I mean, it's, I guess that was one robbery. Right. I guess in the robbery, he netted $8,800 and he spent $4,500 on that's the ring. That's exactly – so his salary for yeah. the month was robbing one bank. He spent really – half it yeah. on the ring. He yeah. obviously loves her a lot. Mm-hmm. It was worth robbing a bank for. Right. Police say uh, Peterson uh, became a suspect after the man wearing an identical hat robbed a bank six days later. Ah, see, that'll get you every time. And, and we've taught on the show over and over, you got to change your costume. Mm-hmm. Nondescript. Yeah. Make sure. Least you can do is get another hat. Yeah. Peterson denied robbing any banks, but told police that the surveillance photos of the robber did look like him. Nah, to be fair. I mean, to be it fair, wasn't me, but. That guy nah, looks a lot I like. I see where you're coming from. <laughs> I'm telling you, the criminals, they're just not, they don't seem as smart as they used to be. I don't know why. I don't know why. Well, that's the that's the journey of it, folks. We will continue the fun straight ahead at a whole other hour on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. Jeff is back. And ironically, the government shutdown has stopped. Yay. Jeff leaves, the government shuts down. Jeff comes back, the government is back up. I'm going to take that as a compliment. There's something about you, Jeffrey. Or there's something that made you cause the entire shutdown. And I come back, 
And they release the names. It's a funny way of saying it, like they're holding them hostage. Yes. Release the names of the Best Picture nominees for the 2018 Oscars. So, look at you. You leave and it's all Oscar mania. Yeah. And, I, you know, I ran through some of these names with you during the break. Yeah. And you had heard of a couple of them. Right. Are you but, ready for them real quick? Yeah, let's hit it. So, nine nominees. The way it works is you can it can be between five and ten nominees, okay. which is a ridiculous rule. But right. we can talk about that later. So, nine nominees. Nine nominees. Wow. Call Me By Your Name. Okay. Uh, Matt. Darkest Hour. Uh, okay. The show. The Matt Townsend yeah. show. Yeah. Dunkirk. Yeah. It feels like Dunkirk. It's a good beach to go to. Uh Uh, Get Out. Get Out! No, that's just telling you to get out. Oh, okay. Lady Bird, your nickname in high school. Yeah. Phantom Thread. Ah, yeah. You get all your genes done by them. Mm -hmm. The Post. Yeah. The cereal that you love. The Post, by the way, this show that's only been out like a month. Uh, Yes. Interesting. The Shape of Water. Hmm. I'm not nerdy enough to know what the shape of water is. I bet it's like the spherical. literal, the literal shape. Yeah, yeah. square. And then square. Uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, these are the ones we keep hearing about. But the real estate that every uh, billboard executive hates. Uh, Star Wars. Nope. The Greatest Showman. Nope. Thor. Thor. Not a one. Boy. Star Wars and and Greatest Showman got a couple. But uh, not Boy, Thor. It's that our taste must not be. Terry, you'll appreciate this. Doubt it. Logan oh. nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Really? Can you believe that? A, uh, a superhero I, movie. I stand here astounded. It's amazing. What, what's an adapted screenplay? You don't want to know. It's a screenplay based on material that's already been created. So I assume they took it from the comics and then that was the adaptation. But... Isn't every movie basically from a book or from not every no, movie? No, adapted but there's from like, somebody's mind. So Logan is the best one. Well, it's one of five. What are the other hmm. ones? Oh goodness, let me see here. Hmm. Um, You're making him dig in the pile. Yeah, no. You know what? You know what's interesting? Uh, James Franco not nominated for best actor. Well, everybody he, hates him though. Well, and it's very He's interesting evil. because a lot of the, people the, struggle the, with the him, voting don't they? deadline. Came right around the time when allegations started coming out around him. And so you'd have people yeah. that said, I voted for him. I wish I could take that vote back, but oh, I voted really? for him. He's been skipping award shows and yeah. trying to lay low. So, so he yeah, is not, not a big surprise. He is not nominated. And yet, Margot Robbie, who portrayed Tanya Harding, is nominated. Now, that's not to say anything about Mar- Margot Robbie, but isn't it interesting? You should say something about Tanya Harding. Some behaviors are condemned, while others are condoned and even celebrated. Ooh, good like point. Like Tanya, Tanya Harding is she, getting all this attention for well, clubbing somebody in the kneecap. It's not Tanya. It's the performance of someone doing no, that. I said, doing not, Tanya. I said not to say anything about Margot Robbie, but this film is being celebrated. Not her, though. The, the Several actor. nominations. But not Tanya Harding, the story. It's well. It's being she's, well told She's and showing up to all the awards ceremonies. Well, yeah, she's like the subject matter. How come, how come OJ didn't win more awards? Like when the Godzilla movie came out, Godzilla was at the movie. Do you think they'll thank Tanya Harding if, <laughs> if like, for instance, if well, Alice no. and Janney wins, no, will no, they thank her? Nobody thanked OJ when all those movies about his how situation rude. won. I mean, thank how heavens. rude. Thank heavens. And if they did, it was a joke. You know, um... This is why I don't like these award ceremony things. It's so crazy because they would have had enough material having Jimmy Kimmel 
return as host and just wasn't that funny last year when we made that snafu where we told you the wrong best picture? That was funny. But then they had everything with Trump. But even all of that aside, now they have everything with the Time's Up movement and Christopher Plummer, who came in to work on this film last minute for nine days, now has an Oscar nomination for it for all the money in the world. Wouldn't that be crazy if he won the if he won the he won't, Oscar. but he won't. Oh, so you already know. Totally I does. already know. It's almost like I can go down this list and tell you who's going to win. It's interesting. I don't know that I would have led with the Oscars today. Really? Well, well, gover- you tried to you tried to talk about the government shutdown. Governments opened up, and. A tsunami warning. Yeah. I mean, that's a big deal. There's a tsunami warning from Alaska, and they won't really know the full impact, but. Yeah, but at least we have Oscar nominations now, right? Yeah. Isn't that. Speaking of tsunami. For a time this morning, (laughs) the West Coast had a tsunami warning. Yeah. Has that been pulled? San Francisco, they pulled that about. Scary deal. uh, a couple hours ago, it was pulled. But yeah, it's, so it's seven point nine earthquake off the coast near the Aleutian, I guess, islands uh, yeah. in Alaska. Yeah. So if you ever watch Deadliest Catch, Deadliest Catch, which you I do, know where the Aleutian Islands are, which means this is going to be part of the show. Deadliest Catch, your wife's nickname for you. Oh yeah, yeah. That so, and yeah, other things. The show Deadliest. I've watched, I think, every episode of that. It's been on. For I like love that. Twelve show. years. So they had when the. Um, the the they had some budget issues in Washington and they started kind of rolling back some of some of the money. what did they call that it was something with during President Obama they had like fishermen from Deadliest Catch were in Congress saying you oh. need to open up the fisheries so we can have you know yeah so uh, they had budget restrictions there and then there's been whenever I'll, I'll watch the weather just wait because there's yeah. some huge storm that rolls through which means the TV show is going to be awesome because. Boats you, are so you actually and, anticipate the oh, next yeah. season. So this is going to be great because there's a tsunami warning and all these guys Whoa. are going to be out in the ocean yeah. and they're, you're, you're going to see the drama, all they the even, edits. That one the, of the buoys was uh, that I guess it was between the earthquake and the land would, like went up 15 feet. Yeah. So they're thinking, Whoa. holy cow, a 15-foot wave right there. Does and anyone ever die other than, in, other than the fish? Nobody on on deadliest catch the, so the, far. There was one captain had a heart attack, and then you know later on was you know he succumbed to the heart attack. Yeah, it, it was a was, it was a pulmonary embolism. Yeah, it was a while. There's there's been people on other boats that the cameras are not on that are lost at sea or fall right. overboard or need to have airlift. They always have an yeah. airlift about every third so show. I, I don't think anyone is like That's while crazy. cameras rolling died. Yeah, thank heavens. Is that worth all that trouble to get a couple of fish? Well, it's, it's you know what it's like. A lot of it's just like the Oscars. Really? Is it really worth it? <laughs> but these, these end, guys, it, these guys will go out for two months of work and come back with like eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. So yeah. that's why they do it. And instead, it's the hardest job in the world. But instead of going out it's and crazy. losing a limb or losing your arm, you lose three and a half to four and a half hours of your life that you'll never get back watching the Oscars. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, just. Exactly. Uh, which is why, by the way, today, what a gift. Um, we'll be joined by Boyd Matheson, who is going to help us understand. In fact, he just had an op-ed piece in the Deseret News about this shutdown, which, and his, his basic position is everybody's messed up. Yeah. Everybody messed up this showdown and the shutdown because 
nobody really benefited at all in the end. And we just have what three hundred more hours before not how many so many days I think it's like two like weeks. seventeen days yeah. sixteen days I think now. until um, we can do this again. Yeah, February 8th. So let's get to the headlines, find out what else is going on, Terry. So the agreement that uh, ended the 69 hours of shutdown, the long and dreadful nightmare that is now over until February 8th, the agreement emerged from a fledgling caucus of impassioned moderates from both political parties who could grow into a new power center in the Senate, reports the LA Times. The deal was worked out by a gang of 30 or so senators calling themselves the Common Sense Coalition. Which grew right. in numbers over the weekend during frantic negotiations in the standoff. Now many lawmakers in both parties are hoping the moderate group will continue to exert its influence to break the logjam. Hmm. Even as the new ideological factions were plotting on how to stamp it out. See? Really? Drama in the halls of yeah. Congress. Yeah. Democrats in particular need to hold the center together to quickly craft an immigration deal to protect dreamers. As the party comes under criticism for its progressive from its progressive wing, they feel like the Democratic leadership caved. Still really? Commentary there. For many, the gathering in the office of Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, offered a glimpse of how the new Senate could break from the hyper-partisanship in Washington to govern. Senator Lindsey Graham, who helped organize the session, says that Susan's office was kind of a Switzerland in, Senate, in the Senate. Kind of a... Oh. Lots of it wasn't chocolate. Left, it wasn't and, right. It was oh. just nice. It was nice and nonpartisan. Go in there and come up with an agreement. Oh, great. Others see it as weak and caving. No, I kind of like that finally they're getting together, some of them. Well, 30 of them. Bipartisan. Yeah. Neat. So we'll see. FBI Director Christopher Wray threatened to quit his post over pressure to fire his deputy, Andrew um, McCabe. Axios reports President Donald Trump was publicly pressured Attorney General Jeff Sessions to fire McCabe, tweeting that uh, he is a Comey friend who was in charge of the Clinton investigation, who got big dollars for his wife's political run from Hillary Clinton and her representatives. Really? Something of that nature. President Trump doesn't like the guy. Yeah. Sessions reportedly urged uh, Ray to dismiss McCabe and make a fresh start with his FBI team. Instead, uh, Ray threatening to resign if McCabe... So everyone basically is uh, not working with the president when it comes to you need to fire people at the FBI. Yeah. Sessions reportedly dropped the ultimatum after... Uh, he dropped the whole issue after the guy said, I'm going to quit. Well, yeah, you don't want to start that. No. That, that would be ugly. The whole idea of the FBI is supposed to be a little bit independent. Right. You're not supposed to start telling not people that could be investigating things what to do when it comes to their employment. Seems like undue pressure. Looks bad for the White House. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. A Michigan man has been arrested after allegedly threatening to gun down CNN employees at the network's Atlanta headquarters over fake news. The man who has not been identified, who's said to have made 22 calls to the news network about a week ago, sparking an FBI investigation. He allegedly told a CNN operator he was traveling to Georgia to, quote, gun you all down. Oh, wow. After repeatedly accusing the network of broadcasting fake news, uh, he says, I'm smarter than you, more powerful than you. I have more guns than you, more manpower. Your cast is about to get gunned down in a matter of hours. So he just goes on and on. Unbelievable. Federal investigators traced the man's calls and arrested him before he was able to carry out any of his alleged threats. Whoa. Scary. Fake news. Yeah. Now, is that fake news? Who knows? I don't know. That's why we need the Facebook newsometer. <laughs> we need all the users on Facebook to judge whether that was newsworthy. That's right. Uh, finally, Skywatchers. Are you a Skywatcher? Uh, is you look at the sky and watch? Is that Luke's That's Skywalker. Ancestry? No. Hmm. 
No, I'm not. Okay. Skywatchers are in for a special treat at the end of January when a lunar trifecta fills the night skies. <laughs> a lunar trifecta? A pre-dawn super blue blood moon. Blue Bloods. Blue Bloods. The lunar event on its, yeah, it's Tom Selleck approved. The lunar event on July 31st is the third in a string of recent supermoons when the moon is closer to the Earth in its orbit and appears about 14% brighter. It also Ah. is a blue moon, which is the second full moon that happens in the same calendar month. The moon's first moon happened on January 1st. It all coincides with a total lunar eclipse, which wow. is called a blood moon. The trifecta. When the moon is in the Earth. So you have... Red, blue, <laughs> So you have the eclipse. super moon, right? And yeah. then you have the second full moon of the month, which is called a blue moon. Yeah. Plus you have a lunar eclipse, which is called the blood moon. This rare trilogy of lunar events hasn't happened in more than 150 years. Wow, cool. Uh, the last blue blood moon was recorded back in March 31st of 1866. Whoa. Where were I remember you? that year. That was a hard year, I remember. According to NASA people living in North America, Alaska, or Hawaii, the eclipse will be visible before sunrise on the 31st of January. So do we all get to take like the day off of work like when we had the uh, total solar eclipse? We didn't take the day off. We all uh, just sort of sloughed off in the afternoon for a minute or two. A lot of people took minute. the day off. Really? I went up to the roof and just laid out. I hang out with sports. Got a lunar... I hung out with Sunburn. Sports Nation out back by my I car. I, and I was That's where all the cool party. kids were. Yeah, hey, you had know. that little aluminum aluminum foil sun that? panel. Uh-huh. You got a good tan that day. I made goggles out of cardboard. Mm-hmm. You were selling them on the street, uh-huh. too. With this one, you can go out like the Adams Family and moon bathe. Really? You ever see that? No. They sit no. out there at the same like <laughs> solar panel thing and like moon bathe and gather the moonlight instead of the to sunlight. That, that we just referenced chalky white look. We just referenced like six TV shows. Yeah, we're doing movies this morning. We're on top of things. I know. I just feels like it was a waste. Um. Anyway, like an adapted screenplay for a comic book. <laughs> hey, that is huge. Name one other comic book movie that has no, 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 been, no. that the script was nominated no. for an Oscar. You should. Read the comic book for Infinity Wars. It's coming out this summer. It's good. That one, I guarantee you, will not be nominated. I know. I know. It's just there's Come a on. there's a bias uh, against comic books. Uh, uh, hey, uh, here's the silver lining in that, though, what? Matt. There's a silver lining, just like Hugh that playbook. Jackman. Hugh Jackman, The Greatest Showman, was not nominated, but his film Logan was for Best Adapted Screenplay. Right. No, but which one's the best? What's well, his the, best work? The Logan got the much showman. better reviews. I know, but that what is that? But the greatest mean? showman is doing crazy numbers at the box I, office. Here's the deal: I don't trust the reviews anymore from Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. Because they were so, botted. They were botted. They were. They were. Uh, they were bot. Yeah. They done did bot. Somebody done did bot them. Now you can look at them. I usually look at them for what is seen as being negative. Hmm. Oh, well, that's how you well, like no, But that's look. how I do like Amazon reviews, too. Yeah. Right? So you go through and you don't look at the five stars, four stars. I look to see what broke. Because the people oh, are really yeah. ticked off. They'll put a picture up there. Yeah. And you can see, like, eh, is that cheap? Do I need this? You'll, you'll get, like, some insights, like on shoes. They'll say it's a little tight in this mm-hmm. area or something. And you get some insights. It doesn't necessarily tell me yes or no to buy it, but it gives me some more information that seems a little bit more unbiased, but you also stay away from the people who just go nuts. Maybe there's like a, a product defect or yeah, something. Yeah, they had I, a bad day. Or I, I bought that balance bike for my for my daughter, and it huh. comes with no pedals, and the negative review was, it didn't have any pedals. Well, it's kind of the whole point it's of the bike. It's a balance bike. Yeah. yeah. 
So you you got to look at the yeah. good with the bad and kind of make your own judgment. Don't just look at the number and go, "Well, look at that," and move on like people do. I like how you think about it. Don't I like you... how you somehow got the fact that you bought shoes yeah. online. <laughs> I actually sent those into... back yesterday. You did? I did. They didn't make the cut. No, they're my my feet hurt in the shoes, and that shouldn't be a, no. a driving you know positive point of the shoe. Well, so I had to get rid of them. For the listeners that have never seen your feet, they're they're big. What you do is you have to just imagine like if Fred Flintstone mm. took his shoes off, right? That'd be Terry. Hmm. What are you trying flat to say? Flat-footed? Are okay. you flat-footed? No. Ish. Uh-uh. Flat, wide. They're, they're a little wider than you. But you so want. to get you a pair of shoes. For the what you do, which is incredible workouts with medicine balls, I need a specific type of shoe and carrying tires. And now because I wear those shoes, all my other shoes have kind of gone that direction. They're kind of style res- of a shoe. You like the wrestling shoe? Love those. As, Old as, Flatfoot South. Yes. Yeah. Keep the shoe as flat <laughs> as possible. Flatty, they call him yeah. Flatfoot South. He's not flat-footed though. For the positive reviews, though, here's a tip. Hold on. Where are you going? Look You're out. Going back to that. Look out for uh, grammar mistakes. Oh yes. Why? Because then you know it's probably not a legit review. If there's a grammar mistake, like glaring grammar yeah. errors. Because there used to be bots there, right? That mm. would go and just. Feed a bunch of malarkey to people about malarkey. It's, it's the worst kind of review. Ah, I think malarkey was nominated for best documentary short subject. No, I think the entire process is malarkey. It kind of feels because how many way. award ceremonies now have we had to hear about See, SAG? I didn't even look it up, but apparently, apparently, there's a new six step process for the Oscars to avoid. The, the fiasco they had last year when it came to oh, the awards. Yeah, who cares? A six-step process to ensure the quality of the just awards do, process. Just do, one, just do one step. Could you please leave your phones in this basket before you go out and hand these awards out? Yeah, because yeah. you don't That's want it. people distracted. That's it. Six and, steps. And did they keep the same group of uh, auditors that are it's watching? The, yeah, it's still Ernst & Young. And uh, uh, I don't remember if they banned those two for yes, life. The, they said last year the two people involved are not involved in the. I mean, they're still working at the company, but they're not involved in the. I think the they're going to be presenters now. They weren't allowed to come to. <laughs> Do the you remember studio. me? I ruined the Oscars. They're going to have their own talk show. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Well, so good. Tsunami warning has uh, has gone away. That's all good. Government's back in operation. Oscars are on board. Up next, Boyd Matheson will be joining us. We're going to be talking about the shutdown madness, really who's to blame, what was going on really, and also talk about Mitt Romney. If he runs, what kind of impact will that have? That's all straight ahead right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, perfect timing. We couldn't have uh, had a better guest lined up for today now that the uh, government is back to work. Or are they uh, joining us to talk about government shutdown, possible running of Mitt Romney, 
um, and uh, and other things political is uh, a wonderful man, Boyd, Ra- Boyd Matheson, who is the president of the Sutherland Institute, which is a conservative think tank. And uh, Boyd um, also has uh, built his own successful consulting firm advising national and state elected officials and uh, was also the chief of staff for Utah Senator Mike Lee back in Washington, D.C. Boyd, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, great to be with you, Matt. This is uh, perfect timing for us. I loved your op-ed piece um, about the shutdown and the insanity. What Can you just explain for us what came out of all of the shutdown? Did anybody win? No, and, and all the American people lost. Yeah, that's the that's the important thing to to understand is that and this, I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender on this one Good. because the the left and the right are both to blame. You you had politicians who were solving their own political problems. Uh, no one was looking out for the American people, uh, and this has really become the pattern in Washington. Um, the shutdown was was really about all of the dysfunction that's going on there, and so it, I, I I call it the industrial complex. You know, there's a there's a reason why six out of the ten wealthiest counties in America are suburbs of Washington, D.C. Huh. They don't yeah. produce anything. They don't make cars, computers, widgets, anything. It's all power, money, and influence peddling. And so the people who won during the shutdown were political parties and outside groups. Uh, I'm sure every one of your listeners across the country got an email over the last few days. <laughs> if, <laughs> if they lean a little more towards the left, they got a... Uh, an email True. from the the Democrats saying, you know, if if this goes through, it's it's going to be, you know, grandma off the cliff and, uh, you know, everything's going to heck in a handbasket by Friday. Send us 50 bucks. And <laughs> if you tilt more to the right, the Republicans sent you an email saying, you know, if, if this thing doesn't get through, we're going to be on the road to serfdom and socialism, you know, send 100 bucks. <laughs> and uh, and they they are not incentivized to solve the problems. Uh, because they they're actually using something, Matt. That and I think you've talked about this before. You know this this idea of division. Uh, we're not nearly as divided as a country right. as those in pa- power want us to believe. I mean, despots and dictators have used this as a strategy for millennium. Right. To convince the people that we're so divided that you know it gives Congress an excuse to do nothing. It gives the president of either party the excuse to do what they want with executive orders. And what does it do? It maintains the status quo of who has the power, money, and influence. Uh, and it's it, it it doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse, or they're getting better at doing this. Um, and then it, it, help me understand this. It was a spending bill to keep the government alive and and um, to keep it financed. And yet we then got into we had DACA thrown into it. Then eventually the building of the wall thrown into one of the offers. Um, plus the child welfare and the child insurance, the chip program, everybody was throwing everything in there. But it was just it just seemed more and more complicated with every turn. That's right, and I, I, that goes all the way back to Madison, I think, who said, uh, you know, it will do no good uh, if you even if you have elected people uh, from the people if the laws are so voluminous that nobody can read them. And and that's part of uh, you said it just right, Matt. It's they've made it so complicated and so full of things uh, that are not connected. Uh, everyone complains about conflict in in Washington, and conflict is not the problem. 
collusion is mm. the problem. That was the big shocker to me going back to Washington as a non-political person. I spent 25 years doing business consulting, uh, and I was shocked yeah. at at how much collusion goes on. And it's you know you you cannot get 20 trillion dollars in debt through conflict. <laughs> uh, and 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 you could ask my wife. <laughs> you guys have tried. <laughs> you know, yeah, because yeah. you know, if I go if I go home tonight and I say, "Honey, I've been thinking about it," which always makes her nervous. Uh, <laughs> if I say, you know, I've been thinking, we actually need a bigger big screen TV because you know Super Bowl's coming up. Uh, it is going to blow a hole in our budget, but I, I think we can make it work. If we have conflict about that, we're not buying the TV and we're right. staying in budget. <laughs> but if we collude and I come in and I say, "Now, honey, I I know you've been looking at that new couch set and." You know, some new things for the dining room. And if we if we bundle all of those things together, yes, it will bowl, blow a bigger hole in our budget. But I'm I'm certain we can, you know, figure it out as we go along and we collude. Then we make a bad decision and we get further in debt. And that's exactly what happens in Washington uh, every day. And that's what we're seeing is all of these things getting tossed in. And if we just do them one at a time, I'm I am still someone who passionately and firmly believes that we could solve 94.5% of the immigration issue in an afternoon on the floor of the United States Senate and on the floor of the House because everyone agrees. Is, is that everyone, true? Yeah, they all. you hear that everybody agrees. Um, but then is it what, just the outliers that make enough noise that they, that they create more chaos about it? If everyone agrees, why can't we solve it? Because you, you've got such a concentration of power in the leadership of both parties. And they are running – they're raising money off mm. of it. They're running political campaigns off it. They're trying to win elections using it as a wedge issue. Again, convincing us that we're too divided yeah. uh, as a country. And it, it maintains the status quo. And, and that's the real challenge. And, and part of that, Matt, is on we the people. You know, we, we complain about this. We complain about our representatives. And yet – Every election cycle, 94% of the incumbents win re-election. Really? That's true. And that's, yeah. that's, that's on us. That's, on, that's a we the people problem. Not a, we, we can't blame that one on Washington. So we, we, the, parties, the parties have power, but really the party leaders have power. This isn't really about 100 senators or whatever. This is about you know, four to six leaders in the Senate. That, that, uh, that's exactly right. And that's the problem with running a government by continuing resolution. It concentrates all the power uh, into the hands of three or four people. It gets done behind closed doors. And then you get what you described, Matt, as the throwing everything in the kitchen sink yeah. into a bill. It's, you know, it, it's sort of like if you're going home tonight and, and your wife says, hey, honey, can you pick up some bread, milk, and eggs on the way home? And so you stop at the store, you pick up your bread, milk, and eggs, you go to the cash register, and they ring you up and they say, well, you know, you, you can't just buy bread, milk, and eggs. Uh, at this <laughs> store, to get your bread, milk, and eggs, you got to buy a, a bucket of nails, a half ton of iron ore, a yeah. Barry Manilow album, and a <laughs> book on cowboy poetry. Yeah. And, and even if you say, I don't need any of those, I don't want any of those, they say, well, then you can't buy your bread, yeah, milk, sorry. and eggs. And so we end up with these all-or-nothing bills that nobody has read. Um, that nobody has gone into the details on. There's lots of things little tucked in there 
by the the folks behind closed doors, and uh, and that's the real challenge in Washington mm. right now. Again, we're speaking with Boyd C. Matheson, president of the Sutherland Institute, which is a conservative think tank. Today, though, he's he's playing bipartisan as we beat up the uh, as we beat up really the 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 whole spirit that's going on in D.C. of um, it's really about certain leadership. And, and by the way, Boyd, is this we hear so much about President Trump? Is can the president sway this process more effectively or is he part of the problem? How do you see his handling of the entire shutdown insanity? Sure. You know, the, the president plays an interesting role in this. And, and, and what the president ought to do is demand that the Senate pick up what the House, the House did their job in September. So the, the way the Constitution outlines it is there's supposed to be 13 bills budget bills, appropriations bills, hmm. and you vote on each one independently. So you fund the military. You take a vote on that. You take you vote on national parks. You vote on education pieces. And that's how it's supposed to work. And the House actually did that in September. They passed them all through. They passed them all through, and they are sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. Hmm. And so what the president should do is say – Let's do this right. Let's get back to regular order. And this goes back a, a long way. This is not new to President Trump. Uh, yeah. During the Obama administration, they never had a budget. Uh, it was all continuing resolution. And uh, and so the president should – I think there's a chance for the president to lead there and, again, to say let's, let's go back to regular order uh, because that's the way it was designed and that's – the country always functions better because then, then we can actually have – an open, honest debate in front of the American people. Right. Because because everyone yes. would have had to have voted before the midterms. They all no, would have had right. to lay down their vote on if we're going to send the appropriation for uh, military and the next appropriation. And so I guess that would put everybody out – that would put everybody out with their vote up there. That's right, which is exactly what the incumbents don't want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's going on. They're, they're all just maneuvering, right, for yeah. this next year. Yeah, that's right. And so that's you know that's there, it's hard to be accountable when everything is done in these big sweeping generalities that nobody really understands. Um, and again, that's on that's on we the people to demand more. We, you hear the leaders in Washington all the time say, you know, it's complicated, it's hard. Trust us. And I think we need to flip that. I think Washington needs to trust the American people. Um, and I think this is important for your listeners, too, Matt, that while uh, politics has failed in this country, for sure, but, but America will not. And, and the reason America won't fail and, and the reason why I can be really pessimistic on our politicians, but I am, I am more bullish on this country than I have hmm. ever been. And it's because our politicians have almost never led. It's community. Oh, really? Yeah. This is historical. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a historical thing. Uh, The politicians aren't the leaders. The people are. That's right. I mean, even back to the, you know, we celebrate the Declaration of Independence as an extraordinary document, which it is. But it was not a leading document. The Revolutionary War had been going for 18 months before the politicians got to put it down on paper. Now, it was an important galvanizing document, for sure, but not a leading document. Another example, 1947, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Hmm. Seventeen years later, Congress got around to passing meaningful civil rights legislation. <laughs> yeah. Even simple things. Here's a, here's a no-brainer for you, Matt. Mother's Day. Congress voted against having a Mother's <laughs> Day over 20 times. Oh, I bet their mothers we, were so mad. 
sweet lady from West Virginia took it, tried to get it passed. They kept shutting her down. So what did she do? She went back home to West Virginia, worked her tail off, and passed it in the West Virginia state legislature. West Virginia was the first state to have Hmm. Mother's Day. And then she went to Connecticut, and then she went to Vermont, and then she went to New Hampshire. And after every state in the nation had passed Mother's Day, then and only then did Congress boldly step forward and declare, we shall have a Mother's Day. So, again, <laughs> not leaders. It, it's, it's the culture and community that lead and the politicians follow. And we have to remember that as citizens. And we have to reassert that to recognize that we don't need someone to waltz in from Washington. It's what happens in our homes, in our neighborhoods and in our communities. And that's why America won't fail. Mm, that's great. And, and Boyd, one of the things I uh, was interested to watch, you were you were thinking of running for Senate. Am I correct? It, was yeah, it in I, your I, head? I, <laughs> <laughs> I entertained those crazy thoughts at one point. Yeah. So so in your head, can can a person, can one person, male, female, can they change this system? Can one person do it? Because we we hear so much about John McCain battling uh, brain cancer now, but also has a strength of voice right now to basically say what needs to be said. Some are saying Mitt Romney may go in and take that place um, if if Mitt decides to run. But can can a can a senator? Does it matter anymore if for one senator, um, or does it take some other movement? No, it it we we have to make sure we never underestimate the power of one voice and whether that's one senator or one member of congress uh, or one citizen uh, that the nation has always moved not just on the minority but the minority of the minority hmm. uh, and sometimes we think oh, I'm, I'm just one person what can one person do uh, there's a great quote by william morris that says one person with an idea in their head is in danger of being called crazy two people with the same idea may be foolish but not crazy. Ten people with the same idea and they start to act. A hundred people and they start, others start to take notice. A thousand people and they start to have results tangible and real. Hmm. Ten thousand and they can change the course of a community. A hundred thousand and they can change the course of a country. And why only a hundred thousand? Why not a hundred million or more? It's you and I who have to answer that question. And so we have to be willing to step in and step up uh, and speak out. Uh, and, and, And as a country, and as communities, we have to get comfortable having some uncomfortable conversations, whether that's about opioids, homelessness, whether that's about religious liberty or LGBT rights. Uh, we're at a time in our country where we, we need to have some courageous vulnerability and start having uncomfortable conversations uh, and not just abdicate those to somebody off in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah. That's um, it, it's got to be fun for you too, as uh, as a husband with to Debbie, five children, four grandchildren. Um, you also you speak with such hope of our future and our country. Um, what what you know? If you had a magic wand, what are some things that you would like to see happen? Um, and what are some changes you would like to make? So I, I would love to see the Senate go back to regular order and real debate. Uh, you know, when when you if you're if you're crazy enough to ever turn on C-SPAN uh, <laughs> and you, you'll see someone giving a speech. And and if they would only just zoom the, the, the camera out a little bit, you would see that they're speaking to an empty chamber. Uh, mostly there's just the interns that are sitting on the steps of the rostrum. Yeah. <laughs> bored to tears. 
And I think they had to lock everybody in there every day for at least three hours. And we ought to have real dialogue and debate about where we are as a country and where we're going. Um, that would be the very first thing I would do uh, is just get it back to we can have these conversations and we need to have them in front of the American Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would also really focus on this idea of elevated dialogue. Uh, too often we, we allow the loud and strident voices on either end of an issue to, to keep us a safe distance from actually having the conversation that will solve the problem. And, you know, we, we more than we have a political polarization problem in the country, we, we have a growing contempt problem, with, with contempt being that belief in the utter worthlessness of another individual. Mm. And with Facebook and social media, if someone disagrees with us, we just, we just blast them. And we do that because we're, if we can convince ourselves that they have no worth, then we sleep a little better at night or we feel a little more justified in, in calling things out. We need to go beyond cable news that, you know, get the, somebody from the left and someone from the right and they shout talking points <laughs> right. past each other for seven and a half minutes and we call it television. Uh, we need to engage in a different kind of dialogue around principles uh, because when we, when we start with principles and then we move to policy, we, we get good results. And we're, we're doing it all wrong. We're living in this politics first, last, and always, uh, and this growing contempt that really prevents us from, from having conversations that would lift everybody. And we would find that we can solve most of the issues we face as a country and as communities and even as families. Mm. Uh, if we listen a little more, talk a little less, uh, and uh, I always say, speak in anger and you'll give the, the best speech you'll ever live to regret. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, if we could learn to just step back a little bit, uh, I think that would that would do wonders for the country. It's powerful. It's also powerful to see um, when somebody has a voice, um, like uh, like a McCain or a Senator Flake, who isn't running again and and has the freedom to kind of say what needs to be said. I guess a lot of them are directing stuff to the president. But it'd be powerful to have some that also could direct it to the Senate and take on even Senate leadership because they're safe in their in their um, in their own uh, office. Some yeah. are saying Mitt Romney would have some of that freedom coming out of Utah. Do you think? Do you think he would be such a trans? Uh, I don't know transformational figure that he would take on the status quo. I, I think he could, and I think that's really the only reason for him to run. Right. You know, I, I wish the, the Senator Flakes and McCain's and, and others uh, had had a little more of that courage going in and not on the way on out. On the way out, right. Um, but I think if Mitt Romney were to attack this like a Bain Capital turnaround, <laughs> uh, that would be good for the country. And, and, and imagine this, Matt. This is something interesting to, to think through. Um, I, I believe there's, there are two people who could <clears throat> excuse me, walk into the Republican conference on January 5th of 2019 hmm. and challenge Mitch McConnell to be the leader and win. And one is Mitt Romney. The other happens to be Marco Rubio, uh, because everybody loves Marco Rubio. Interesting. Uh, but, <clears throat> but imagine this. So imagine if, if Mitt Romney did that, and then he surrounded himself with some real policy folks like Marco Rubio, Ben Sass from Nebraska, Mike Lee from Utah, to people who are really passionate about good policy based on principle. 
And then they tag team with, with Paul Ryan in the house. Hmm. So ima- imagine this scenario where you could you could have Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan actually having a bigger impact on the direction of the country from the opposite end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Right. Than if they had won an election and been sitting in the Oval Office at the other end of yeah. Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, it's plausible. It's possible. Uh, and I and I hope it happens because I think. I think that would change the dynamic. It would get things back to what are the right principles and the right policies for the country. Uh, it's also interesting, you know, President Obama really never had his own agenda. It was really Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi on the other end in Congress sending their agenda down the street that to him. President Obama had to sign. Um, so I think there's some really fascinating things. I do think a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, you know, Mitt Romney is just going to have this, you know, cage match with the president. Hmm. Um, and I don't and I don't see that people who are expecting that, I think, will be sadly disappointed. Um, I think they're they agree on a lot of the policy pieces. They'll disagree on a lot of the, the style and, and approach to things. Uh, but the one thing you have to learn and I think the one thing Mitt Romney understands about President Trump that most people in Washington don't is that President Trump is 100 percent transactional. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's not, all about not, the transaction, not yeah, principle. So yeah. Yeah. So that's why he can, you know, he can cut a deal with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on Monday, and then he can absolutely <laughs> annihilate them on Twitter right. at three o'clock on Tuesday morning. And, and so everything is a transaction. I think part of the problem in the Senate is Mitch McConnell believes he has a relationship with the president uh, because they're of the same political party. Right. But but the president has shown he's not afraid to uh, fire a shot across the bow or even a shot at the bow that's right. of, of Mitch McConnell if he disagrees on a certain issue. Yeah. So I think I think because Mitt comes from from a businessman background, he understands the nature of, of transactions. And so I think he could make deals and, and get policy things through with the president because they agree on a lot of those things in terms of uh, the economy and jobs and opportunities for for working families. Um, and and then I think they they will have a, a nice debate about other things. And That's it, right. That won't be a problem. And uh, you know, Nimitz also already knows how to work with Democrats. He he ran a the most democratic state, maybe possibly, um, in the country. So. Powerful stuff. Boyd, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your insight, your time. I know you're a very busy man, and uh, we, we just appreciate hearing uh, your take on this. Again, Boyd Matheson from the Sutherland Institute, um, shooting very, very straight with us on uh, the chaos that's going on, the insanity, quite honestly, that's going on in D.C. And really, it's about leadership and um, the fact that most of the senators, most of our, our congressmen and women, they're they're basically beholden to their leadership in in their um, in their in in politics. It's not even up to what they want, per se. Powerful, powerful opportunity, I think, for leadership. We will continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Back, friends. Uh, Boyd Matheson is the guy that watches um, C-SPAN and watches it faithfully. There's one. But how powerful would it be, honestly, if they did lock our senators in 
chamber for three hours a day to do nothing but debate the immigration issues. Turn on the uh, the heater. Uh-huh. Turn it way up. Turn up the heater. Mm. Sweat them out. Sweat them out. Okay, so uh, what headlines? What other news do you have for us, Terry? Tim Cook apparently went to, um, i trying to see, Apple CEO. Colli- college in Exis. Essex? Essex. Essex, Essex, England, and he told the uh, the the students he was talking to. They asked him uh, about social media. He said he if he had kids, which he doesn't, but he has a nephew. Yeah, he goes, I wouldn't let kids use social media. No, I, I yeah, I heard that. That's they tried. So, uh, so Apple's the head yeah. of Apple says I wouldn't let my kids near social media. No, just wouldn't even. He says <laughs> it's bad. Your kid's not going to benefit from it. Don't do that. Wow. Okay. Now that's they good they to tried know. a social media platform with Apple called. Ping or something. I don't know. It was something several years ago, but yeah, they, yeah. they they went away from it because they Ping. they found out it was very um, it was difficult. It was a, a concept they weren't really uh, comfortable with, mm-hmm. and they went off and decided we're, we're going to go more hardware to really? look at that stuff rather than take care of the actual software and the yeah. actual platform. You guys can take care of that. Sure. So yeah, that makes uh, sense. Amazon opened their cashier free grocery store. Oh, really? Good. Up in Seattle, they had some some bumps and bruises along the way, but it's finally opened, and the idea is the shelves are weighted, so when you take a product off, it knows you've taken that product, uh-huh. and when you walk through uh, all the barcodes, and there's all these sensors and cameras that know what you're taking, and it just throws it into your Amazon account. That's great. So when you, you, there's no, nobody stops you walking out the door, you just go. Now, they did some testing, uh-huh. and they just threw some random situations at it, like what do you do if a kid decides just to open up a candy bar and eat it right there in the store? And the, oh. the, the system wasn't ready for that. Well, they just need to weigh you on the way in, and then they yeah. can weigh you on the way out. So little little hiccups like that they had to kind of iron out. But, yeah, so automated store. That makes sense. Will don't that you, spread it? I don't know if it's going to go everywhere, but we'll see. Don't you feel a little naughty when you, when you want to eat something before you pay for it? You open up the wrapper, and then you have to take the empty wrapper and have them scan that. Yeah. I feel you like, almost feel like you're getting away with well, something. Yeah, and it, yeah, it just shows you have no self-control. <laughs> you can't even wait until it's paid for. I couldn't control myself. I ate three donuts. And the ratings for the uh, AFC-NFC playoff games over the weekend. How'd they do? They were a, a, a respite from the, the shutdown nonsense, yeah. right? Yeah. So the NFC game, that was the Eagles and who did they play? The Vikings. The Vikings. Uh, that earned a 27.4 rating, which wow. is about 46 million people watched that game. Holy cow. That's almost the Bachelor numbers. Just like five bachelors. <laughs> uh, the AFC game with the Patriots and the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, 27. Wow. They're also, doing all right. And 48 million viewers watched that game. Yeah. Now, that game was more intense. Intense. There was more to it. The NFC game was kind of settled. I oh, checked out at halftime. But, yeah, so big numbers, people watching. Football still a big hit. All right, we'll continue uh, the fun and the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back. You know, we were just talking about the fact that uh, the AFC-NFC football championship games got such high ratings, but then do the Oscars get as high of ratings as football? I think it depends on the year. Yeah, I mean, it, it will never get as many as much uh, ratings as like the football. Super Bowl, right? Right. 
But I think it depends on the year. I think this could be a big year just because of all of the really controversial issues that yeah. are going on. But right aren't now. there a lot of movies this year that nobody's heard of? Uh, yeah. Like The Shape of Water. Shape of Water, not many people have seen. Not many people have seen Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Not many people have seen Phantom Thread or Lady Bird yeah, or I mean, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, I'm not going to watch it just for so that reason. So last year— and one of those films will win, by the way. 4% four per, really? drop on the Oscar ratings last year drew 34 million viewers. Not quite what they just drew in the AFC and NFC the championship two games. two football games got 46, 46 million. and 48 million. So a little bit more watching those, not a little bit more, and a couple, you know, several million. I think more. more people will watch this year, though, just because of what happened last year with the mix-up and all the issues that are going on yeah. right now. But, ah. but it is the most watched non-sports event of the year. Is and it, is Jimmy it Kimmel did a great job. Really? Yeah, he'll do a great job again. Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel's talent, you know, and he's, he always brings up his cute kid. <laughs> so it's all good. It was the last year. It says it was the lowest since 2008. Really? Yeah. Okay. Now, which one would you prefer to watch? Football. Hands okay. Down. Now, what if I told you if you watched the Oscars, you could have your favorite meal. If you watched football, you had to eat your least favorite meal. Football. Really? Yeah. I just wouldn't eat. Hmm. It's. I'd rather even watch European football. Oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah, me too. Football. I'd watch soccer. What about if you had to watch it while getting a root canal? Football. Whoa. Because they'll knock you out. Yeah, they give then you, you some good the benefit. stuff. But they don't knock you out in this scenario. Oh, wow. He's just oh. making it just unreasonable okay. then now. Fi- then if, if I had to have a root canal, then I'd probably choose to go watch the Oscars. But I think we got gotcha. I think it would feel the same. <laughs> it's all the same. Okay. Uh, what would you do? Go talk to your friends about that. Uh, We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. Jeff is back, and it just so happens that the minute he's back, the government is back in... uh, in full running. You're welcome, America. <laughs> when you leave, the government shuts down. When you come back, the government is uh, running again. Something is fishy. Hmm. <laughs> Do you care to explain where you went and how you shut down the government when you were gone? Really, it had nothing to do with that. I just didn't want to come back until the Oscar nominations were out, so I had something to talk about. Really? Yeah, and I noticed. Let's give them something to talk about. Okay, people won't be talking about the Oscars. I'm sure this year. Not as you keep singing like that. Half of the, I mean, at least half of the films nobody's even heard of. Right. So, I think that's kind of disappointing. Hmm. I, I want the Oscars to be about maybe three or four or five movies. 
It used to be the good. It ones. used to be five the five best films, but now it's they just want to be more inclusive. They want everybody's work to be appreciated and spotlighted. And it's interesting because even when they announced the nominees this morning, they made they created these whole videos with celebrities, all of which were women, by the way, and just to announce the lesser known categories. Like makeup and hairstyling, like sound effects editing, sound mixing, things like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think everybody's shouting and, and screaming for that right now to have every to be more inclusive, not just as far as diversity is concerned, but let's recognize everybody's work. Let's recognize you know, let's recognize the PAs and the caterers. And by the way, we've got a segment coming up with Schick where he interviews one of the lesser known nominees. Ah. Uh, so Schick gets it right this time. Good Schick. And uh, but the thing is, I mean, let's be honest. If you if you had the opportunity to recognize everybody's work. Yeah. How important would it be if let's say, for instance, we're going to give you an opportunity to recognize everybody's work. It's going to be great. All the lesser-known people are now going to be known. Well, you you think that's great, right? That would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, but we're gonna. It's going to add two hours to the Oscar ceremony. Well, but here's the deal. <laughs> so in a in a in a movie like Coco, yes, um, the work of the animators, the work of a lot of people behind the scenes really is more powerful and important to the movie than the voice the voices, aren't they? Yeah, but I th- But the I, voices get the attention. I think if people knew how much more time it was going to add to these award ceremonies, yeah, no, I think right. people would be like, uh never mind. We you're take right. that back. Right. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be that uh, diversified. What they really want to celebrate isn't everybody. And everything they want – well, and they also need to make sure their careers are moving forward. But they really just want to celebrate the five big stars and the song. Speaking of songs. This one was nominated for the, Best Original Song. This one always makes you cry. He, he always gets emotional here. I fell asleep. It's a great song, though. <laughs> it's a great song. There's a lot of wonderful music, and yet we're going to spend all this time hearing from the leading actor and leading actress and supporting actor. And No, you won't. Just watch something else. That's right. Yeah. There's Great, n- the there's... song from Greatest Showman, This Is Me, also nominated. Uh, I think it's between that one and this one. Yeah, I think it's going to be The Greatest Showman, not to No! Um, okay, Sorry. so all of uh, all of the Oscars again. You somehow you just totally jumped in on the lead again. Yeah, and you, you just brought, brought it the up. Oscars. You brought it up in passing. Like I was like bringing it up to move to the next thing, and hmm. you pulled us over, pulled the camper out, started you know get out of the, leveling. You the got camper. the cooler out of the back. You started making sandwiches. It's like, yeah. dude, slow down. Every time I think I'm out, he pulls me back in. <laughs> It's a film I've never seen, by the way, if you can believe that. That's one you haven't seen. Yeah. Well, there's always tomorrow. Or and this afternoon. Didn't Annie say that? I think she said the sun will come out tomorrow. This afternoon. Bet your bottom dollar. That this afternoon. Uh, moving on to the headlines now. Let's get to hmm. Terry, see if he can... Uh, pull out a non-movie reference as he does the headlines. Senate Majority Leader uh, Ch- oh, Chuck... 
Chick Chuck. Chuck, Chuck Schumer. Schumer. Chick Schumer would be a good name, too, but that's Shumway, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what we're trying. Where did Chick come from? So Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer announced Monday down the Senate floor that his party will provide enough votes to pass a Republican plan to reopen the federal government till at least February 8th, the bipartisan deal, contingent upon a promise from Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that he will open debate on an immigration bill protecting so-called dreamers from deportation. That's where a lot of Democrat supporters are having a problem. You're huh. banking on the majority leader to keep a promise. Yeah. And he has every How's that everything motivating him, you know, for party ideal, their 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 plans for the next few months is to not follow through with that. Yeah, right, right. And you're just going, "Okay, he promised. Good. Let's let's open the government." They feel like the Democrats have caved. <laughs> taking a lot of heat at the moment from their supporters. Right. In the end, 33 Democrats flipped to vote for the temporary spending bill, including uh, Senator Schumer, Dick Durbin, uh, Sherrod Brown, Tammy Baldwin. Among the holdouts were senators who have been floated as potential Democratic presidential candidates, including Kirsten uh, Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Kamala Harris. Oh, yeah. And Rand Paul and Mike Lee both voted against it because Mike Lee wants a regular order. Where you're going through the actual process of the Senate, and Rand Paul doesn't vote for anything. So right, Rand's just, just that's Rand's brand. Right. I don't vote for nothing. He needs a bumper sticker. Do you think people in Kentucky like that? Uh sure. He wants a balanced budget. It's never balanced. He's not going to vote for it. Uh, but that, that's such a great position. I want balance. I want it to be balanced. Yeah. I just want a balanced budget. You can't fight. I mean, and you can argue, but I mean, he's just going to say what's what's yeah. wor- bad about a balanced budget. Right. Let's be fiscally responsible. It's, yeah, it's the one thing. It's the one point. Senator Ted Cruz, he's been kind of quiet. Yeah, Ted's really been heard very much quiet. Of him. He spoke up yesterday in a rare or a short brief press availability. He said he claimed that he has consistently opposed shutdowns. Really? Yes. Despite him shutting down the government in 2013 over Obamacare funding. Yeah. Senate Democrats oppose everything, resist everything, shut everything down. The conservative senator lamented during his press availability. This sounds pretty familiar. MSNBC's Kate Hunt uh, shot back referring to Cruz's demands in the 2013 ordeal. Yeah. He came, he shot back saying, no, 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 no. I wanted to open the government. They go, well, yeah, but you wanted, you would open the government if they defunded Obamacare. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 the Democrats wouldn't open the government. It was a reasonable request. Right. Defund the president's signature uh, piece of legislation. Right. Like, Well, no. And so he's trying to, he goes, he went to the, he goes, I went to the floor asking unanimous consent to reopen the government and defund Obamacare. He leaves that part out. That yeah. last part, the defund Obamacare part. He says, so when Hunt noted that he actually stood in the way of opening the government, Cruz snapped back in his role, says his role in the 2013 shutdown is a wonderful media narrative. Yeah. Uh, Do you think he misremembers? Yes. Is that an approach there? Does he not remember everything? Yeah. <laughs> He's just, I think he wants to play but doesn't want to play on certain things. Okay. Certain topics. Yeah. So he's just going to kind of be quiet he's and then others lay low for a while. And he'll try to lead other. other it seems ways. like he could, because he's from Texas. It seems like yeah. Texas senators should be leading the immigration issues. R- reports are he's vulnerable in upcoming oh. elections. So maybe, that's so maybe why he's, he's trying to just try to play nice. quiet and play mm-hmm. nice and not ruffle feathers. Yeah. Uh, President Trump's need to dis- uh, need to dis- disagree with his advisors may be borderline pathological. Hmm. Some aides have gone so far as to diagnose the president with defiance disorder. Oh, really? 
The Washington Post reports, citing revelations from a forthcoming book written by former Fox News host and Post reporter Howard Kurtz. Yeah. Kurtz's book, Media Madness, Donald Trump, the Press, and the War Over the Truth, explains that some of the president's top staffers privately coined the term for Trump seeming a seeming compulsion to do whatever his advisors are most strongly urging against. Well, you know, there is a there is a defiance disorder, and it yeah. is it's affiliated with attention deficit disorder. Right, and the New York Times' mm. Maggie Haberman pointed that out, says this is an actual disorder. It's a valid malady yeah. listed the formal so, psychiatric diagnostic text. It's not just yeah. a catchphrase for people So you got to be careful. Everybody's so, got to yeah. be careful there. But, but he is fairly defiant, and he does <laughs> like to do the opposite of what you think he would do. Hmm. Isn't this great how President Trump is fueling the economy? There are all these books being <laughs> yeah. written about oh, him. Yeah. I think the real point of that is there's another book coming out. <laughs> By Kurt. Is it Kurtzman? But Kurtz. Kurtz is, I mean, that's a pretty known name. Right. Huh. And so, I mean. I didn't know it. More but. inside the White House, you know, sort of palace intrigue Boy, type writing. And a lot of insiders that have loose lips. Yeah. He's got a. Yeah. And derogatory things to say, too. Right. I mean, he's your boss. Yeah. Play nice. I guess. Respect. Or at least don't put your name on it, because then he just looks in the index and you're the next target, right? That's right. Uh, And finally, Naomi Parker Fraley. F-R-A-L-E-Y. Who? A California woman who posed for the famous Rosie the Riveter poster died (gasps) Saturday. That's right. Wow. Her family confirmed this Monday. Fraley, 96 at the time of her death, posed for the picture while working at the Alameda, California factory in 1942. The famous picture, which showed Fraley flexing her arm with the caption, We Can Do It, became an iconic feminist image. But for decades, uh, she was not identified as the model in the picture, and scholars mistakenly concluded that a different female factory worker had posed for the portrait. She was only widely recognized, or she was widely only recognized after the real Rosie the Riveter in 2016, after a scholar, James J. Kimball, published an article revealing the findings of a six-year investigation into finding out who the real Rosie the Riveter was. Whoa. Wow. A six-year investigation to find out this picture that was taken. And then they found her. Yeah. What year was that? The picture was taken? Yeah. 1942. Wow. Mm. Working in an Alameda factory, probably. Well, it doesn't say what she was working on. Rosie the Riveter. Yeah. And it's funny now because uh, she's flexing, but she had the arms common of a female in the 40s mm. not the arms of a riveter female <laughs> in 2018 right cuz yeah she doesn't she what was what uh, she's not a gladiator you know like those she's gladiator not like storm arms storm or ice but she was she could see resolve in her face we can't do it so she was saying was she french no huh okay just checking that's cool That's a really cool time uh, or piece of Americana right there. Absolutely. May she rest in peace. Um, Okay, so we've got our headlines. Tsunami warning uh, down still could be a problem for those up in Alaska. Yeah. But California, the British Columbia had their whole coastline was part of the alert. I'm not sure if they've backed off that. But, I mean, they had an earthquake out in the deep part of the ocean, which usually leads to that miles out, I guess. Yeah. Not even really that deep, apparently. No, which might be the reason why it's dissipated quickly. We feel like it's uh, it's a really good place to get a lot of crab mm. 
and because there's a shelf right there, and, and yeah. once they drop off into the shelf, it's yeah. Anyway, uh, they're like lemmings just marching. Terry out and I love the crabbing out there. <laughs> it's a great show. <laughs> out and, near and the Aleutian Islands. I, during this run of Deadliest Catch, the show we're talking about, I I went from standard definition to high definition. Whoa. Right. So standard definition, it's all right. You're just watching yeah. the show. But once you go to high def, all of a sudden you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. There's ice. There are you know, sledgehammers knocking chunks of ice off the sides of boats. You know, people getting crushed by crab pots. And all. you're like, okay, I can see why the high definition works now. <laughs> you know, you can watch sports and you kind of see the real life sort of view of it. But once the, I, I watch that show, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I just, I, I'll buy into a high def. For a long time, I never got high definition. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm fine. I can just watch standard def. I'll be okay. No, but now you understand. But I got that. I'm like, oh, I have to have, you know, high yeah. def. Got to do this yeah. now. Because so, Cause... it's, it's a good presentation. Right. No, you have to ignore, there's some things where it's just kind of, maybe some manufactured drama. Sure. Just through camera editing and. And music and like okay, so nothing happened there. Okay, moving on. But it's well, it's interesting to watch what they go through to do that job. But everything is more exciting when your workplace is constantly moving. <laughs> That's the other thing. You watch the they put new guys on these boats and they just get sick. Oh yeah. Have you been deep sea fishing before? No. No. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, it's it's actually very got, fun, but got, it's nauseating. I got motion sickness on a cruise ship. Yeah. Well, by the way, not to be too graphic, but when people get sick on a sh- on a deep sea fishing vessel um i'm talking about like just the sport ones not yeah. the big ones that are out the commercial yeah. ones yeah but once everybody starts getting sick over the side of the boat i'm telling you the fish start hitting like crazy <laughs> i mean it's illegal it's chumming but yeah it's bad <laughs> but it is it is it is the funnest thing in the world except the ride out there is nauseating yeah. And then you get out there, and you're out there for six hours, eight hours, and it's up and down all day long. But then a fish on, it's fun. Mm. So you get back on land, and then you still think oh, yeah. everything's moving. No, right. Then you, yeah, it is the, and then you go to dinner that night, and really nobody usually wants seafood. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have a hamburger, please? Yeah. <laughs> but you feel like the entire restaurant do you, is moving. Do you feel obligated to eat fish? I mean, you spent your entire day fishing. It's pretty amazing because you'll bring in your fish and then they mark your fish and then they'll put it on ice Hmm. and you can have your fish sent home. Like my grouper, please. Thank you. Yeah, it's pretty – it is amazing too because you also don't know what you're going to pull in. Right. You might pull in a shark. Yeah, it's like a license plate. (laughs) You might pull in a license plate. (laughs) No, but – Like Iowa. How did this get in the ocean? So I'm going to try to get up to the Aleutian Islands. Really? Maybe get me some crab. Mm. Don't forget your little patches. Gotta, yeah. Got to put my patch on. It could be fun. You, mean, you could you have your kids put the little stickers on Arr. you. No. Get okay. over here, kids. Now, that would be amazing. Honey, you don't put your Dramamine patch over your eye. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Oh, how fun. Okay, let's get to the empty news. Uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson, back to um, anchor the empty news report. Jeffrey? So, a lot of crazy weather and uh, a lot of times it uh, it it makes things worse for us right yeah it's, it's killing shovel, people it's stranding right. people well here's here's uh, one good thing that came out of this snowstorm listen to this snow stopped a north dakota man from escaping after he shoplifted $4000 worth of merchandise from a hobby lobby store wednesday what 
this has got to be the nerdiest heist ever. <laughs> the Hobby Lobby? Come on. Like, I need some grommets. <laughs> You're stealing grommets and dowels. Police say that Dustin Johnson, 22, spent seven hours filling up a shopping cart with thousands of dollars worth of products. He wheeled the cart of stolen goods out of the store, but it got stuck in the snow and tipped over. Johnson tripped, abandoned the cart, and fled the store on foot, police say. Police say Johnson left behind his wallet, which contained his identification with his address. Police arrested him at his home. (laughs) You know, that is another good sign that you're a millennial. You're a millennial. When you lose your wallet during a Hobby Lobby heist, you're a millennial. (laughs) You are totally a millennial. Wow. You also also don't need um, – we we had a a theft recently near our house where the guy – actually, it was near Terry's bank where the guy left his keys. He left his car keys and couldn't uh, – and that's how they caught him. Really? You can't leave your car keys. You don't do that. No. That, wow. that gets you every time. Yeah. Um, you know, I teased this earlier. You often give Shik Shumway a really hard time on the show. Well, Shik always seems to show up almost at a at the right place, but at, at the wrong time, like a day late. Sometimes you can't hear what's being said. Remember, he showed up at the inauguration, but I think he was it's a day early. A day early. Yeah, yeah, they were still setting up the yeah. uh, the scaffolding and the yeah. bleachers. And... One time there was the – he showed up somewhere where they were like making all this noise and then he, he filed a report and we couldn't hear one word he said. Yeah. Well, this time he's actually speaking to one of the Oscar nominees. Oh, really? And we talked earlier about how there are so many people that just don't get the recognition yeah. that they deserve in Hollywood. You know, because people in Hollywood, they need yeah. their egos stroked. Totally, right. And we're not talking just about the actors and the actresses and the costume designers. But in this case, you know, we want to make sure that the ego of the caterers are stroked as well. And uh, so we've got Shik Shumway here with an interview. Immediately following the broadcast, I recorded phone interviews with some of this year's biggest nominees. However, in an effort to present you with something completely different, since everyone will be airing interviews with those two stars... Here's a nominee from one of the lesser-known Academy Award categories. Franz Volstein is nominated for Best Catering for a Live-Action Documentary Short Subject in the Vegan Kosher Light Lunch category. Congratulations on your nomination. Thank you, Sheik. This is a big day for caterers kosher and non-kosher alike. What was your reaction to the big news this morning? Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't hear about it until my catering agent called me up and told me himself. I was a little disappointed. Some of my perhaps more deserving colleagues weren't nominated. For instance, they didn't nominate Philippe Pepillon, who catered for the film My Life as a Mayfly, or Georges Leibowitz, who was a caterer for the film Documentary, The Documentary. I'd say the news was rather bittersweet. Bittersweet? Can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, it really is an absolute thrill to be nominated. However, I won't actually be in the Dolby Theatre main concert hall for the award ceremony, since I'll be the caterer for the event. The catering award will be handed out prior to the main event at a luncheon, 
which I'm also catering. You know, this really underscores Hollywood's consistently reckless behavior towards caterers. They hand out these awards willy-nilly, and then all of a sudden it's okay for actors to belittle us with angry tirades and obscene requests like making their meals kosher and halal. Well, if I win, I'm going to have a thing or two to say about that. Uh, excuse me. Congratulations on your nomination. Uh, Miss Eisel, Jan Eisel, you're nominated for Best Singer in a Foreign Movie Review. How do you feel? Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, every day we face challenges, either professionally or personally. And our guest today, life and business coach uh, Michelle Atias, says our mindset impacts how we deal with those challenges. We either operate from fear or what we call a scarcity mindset or from trust, an abundance mindset. And uh, we, you know, if we can somehow regroup ourselves and, and operate more out of fear or out of trust and um, abundance, it could actually change our lives in a way that we may not um, we may not fully appreciate and, and understand. So, so honored to have her with us. Michelle has been a personal development coach for 20 years and uh, was a therapist before then, um, before she had this abundant switch in her mind and opened up a whole new world of possibilities for her. Michelle Atias, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. You bet. It's it's an honor to have you. Uh, now, here's the deal, Michelle, because uh, I, I worked for um, Stephen Covey, who taught about mm-hmm. abundance mentality, scarcity mentality. But there there's something really deep-rooted in your ability to see the world as either an abundant resource that you can experience, or you might see it as a scarce resource. Talk to us about um, abundance versus scarcity mentality. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we kind of, it's, it's almost like a button that you switch on and off, um, because you, I personally, I notice it. But I notice it when I'm in scarcity, because uh, when I'm in a scarcity mindset, and I do step in and out of it sometimes. I'm not perfect, and I no, still right. negotiate my way around it, but I'm aware of it. I guess when that's the key, right, is noticing exactly. it, being aware of it. Exactly. It might never end, but it doesn't matter because now I'm aware of it and I'm aware of when I'm stepping in and I'm stepping out of it. So when I'm in scarcity mindset or when I've been in scarcity mindset in the past, um, I feel uh, anxious. Everything feels limited. I feel almost like a a sense of desperation. Mm. Um, and, And I spoke about that in the article, almost as if you're going to a sale at Harrods and you pick on the on one item thinking that that's it, you're never going to get anything better. So you become almost, uh, you cling on to things that might not even serve you, but you cling on to it um, because you believe that there's nothing better, that there is just nothing better. But when you, or when I have an abundance mindset, I know there's always more. I feel it in my body. I don't feel anxious. I feel uh, open to whatever's coming to me. And And I sincerely feel that, more is yet to come. So I can shift between mindsets, and I notice it when it happens. Uh, so, so for anybody who's listening, you know, it, it's, it's, it, the clue is always, I believe in your body. Your, your body feels it. You know, your, it tenses up. It feels anxious, you know. And, um, 
and with with abundance there's an openness that happens mm. very organic lovely openness that happens and then I guess the choices that you make from that place are very, very different because you're no longer you're no longer tolerating stuff that you would normally tolerate. You know there's more, therefore you don't have to tolerate what you've been given. You can you can go out there and get more because you know it's there, or wait till it comes to you. But but there's a very different way of I guess a very different way of operating in life. And I, I talked in the article about limited mindset you know because it does yeah create a very limited mindset does is because i look at it um and and I, i i know i get exactly not exactly but i get what you're saying in how it it also fosters um this sense of Fear, the scarcity mindset does, and this anxiousness, this anxiety. And as we live in a world today where there's so much more anxiety, it seems like, than ever before, I wonder if it's not because – you know, more and more people are are kind of glomming on to the fact that – you know, they got to get what they can get and and just hang on to whatever you've got because you may not be able to get more. That's right, and it's not just hanging on to what you've got, but there's also fear in giving too much away because you might not be able to, you know, there's this fear in giving too much. Uh, if I give too much, I won't have enough for me. So there's always a, almost like a protectiveness as well around you. Um, and I was working with a client a while back, and, and her fear was that, uh, you know, she didn't want to give too much away because she was scared that she wouldn't have enough. Right. So it almost affects you know, lots of different ways that we really operate, but it's generally from a place of fear. And does, when you look at it, I mean, also with your therapeutic background, is this yeah. something that, um, are, are we born into this? Are we, are, is this abundance versus scarcity mentality something we're trained up in? I mean, it makes sense if you were born like during the depression that you'd be a scarcity-minded yeah. soul. But um, how how is it that we go about creating this paradigm for ourselves? Well, it's interesting because you talk about me, you know, my time when I was a therapist. Being a therapist was very, very different. I had a very different mindset yet then, and I probably had more of a scarcity mindset. Um, the way that I worked with my clients was more limited. Uh, it was very different. Being a coach, I work on you know, abundance on, on uh, you know, picking up on somebody's potential, their resourcefulness, their resilience. I'm picking on all those things and I'm teasing it out because I know there's more and I sincerely believe that when I work with somebody. I already work with them knowing they have more. And when they see that I believe that, they also begin to trust that. So, you know, I, do I believe that you're born I, in that way? I believe that we're born completely perfect. And I believe we're born whole and perfect and beautiful and resourceful and, uh, you know, full and armed with potential. Unfortunately, over time, uh, you know, uh, whether it's in our early years, we begin to have thinking that comes in that tells us we might not be enough, that we need to behave a certain way, that, uh, you know, we, we build defenses that make us feel safe. And that might be that that scarcity mindset has kept you safe when you were five years old, but you're still operating in it when you're in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm. So that's a time to really look at that. It might have served me well then, and I thank it for having come into my life then, but it might not serve me now that I'm an adult. Mm. 
I'm a big believer that uh, feelings follow thinking. And yeah. um, so what are some of the feelings that we feel that uh, would be telling us that we, we're probably, you know, entrenched or, or caught up in a scarcity mentality? The feeling, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, thinking comes first, then the feeling is manifested because you're, you're, you're feeling your thoughts, basically. Right. And then you experience, your experience in the moment is powered by that. So, um, so really, I would say kind of a tightness in the chest, uh, you know, this anxiety and this almost like a desperation as well. I mean, I, I see it in, a couple, you know, in my clients as well, uh, saying yes to jobs they don't really want because they don't believe there's going to be more. So feeling a sense of, uh, you know, the, the, the des- a desperation. So really questioning yourself, hmm. you know, is what I'm going to go for, if, if basically, and I think that's, that's one yeah. thing that I ask in the article, that if I knew, say if I'm going for a job and I'm really not that happy with it, but I really have a belief that there's nothing better out there, well then that's where I'm going to go. But what if there were five or six people asking me, would I like to be working with them? Would I still be saying yes? Well, what if that was possible? What if it was possible for me to create more possibilities as well? Because this is also part of opening ourselves up. Yeah. It's not just about waiting for the universe to deliver, but it's also about us putting ourselves out there, knowing that not only is there enough out there, but we're also enough. Mm. And it's interesting, that question. Um, so if I'm a consultant uh, and, I, and I'm hanging on to this one client, doing everything I can, yes. even lowering myself and, and being someone I'm not, but being so desperate mm-hmm. and needy, then you say you suggest ask yourself, okay, so if there were five or six people out there looking for your services right now, looking to work mm. with you, would you hang on as tightly to that one? That is such a freeing idea. Mm. Um, what? Because that, I guess that that creates that creates the abundance idea. Um, because if I, I guess it gives me a hope, it gives me um, mm. a, a, something else to hang on to. How do we – is there a way to create that similar um, abundance if I'm just starting out and there really aren't four or five people yet even knowing about yes. my services? How do I create the abundance without already having it around – or not, not – it's already there, but I don't see it? I think just play with it. I think just play with abundance. Play with what it would be like if I would feel abundant in my life. And that has nothing to do with my bank balance. Right. So let's be clear. Right, exactly. It doesn't matter. I've worked with very wealthy people and I've worked when I was a therapist. I used to work with kids in complete and utter poverty. And honestly, there is no difference. It is a mindset, nothing to do with your bank balance. But if we could just play with showing up in the world as if we are already enough, as if we're already abundant, as if we have already everything that we actually need, we've already got it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're sitting back and just, you know, uh, burning incense and chanting mm. to the winds. It means also knowing that because I'm enough um, and because there's so much out there, I'm going to go out there and get it. So it might be that you're starting out, you don't have a lot of clients, so you go and uh, you might want to go on LinkedIn. You might want to go on some great networking events that are out there. So you're going to play with where that abundance is. So you're going to go to these events. You're going to connect with people. You're going to reconnect with people you already know. Maybe they have clients for you. 
So you're going to play, you're going to be in that mindset already. And what tends to happen is the universe begins to almost respond to it because you're showing up differently Mm. rather than with a scarcity mindset of, you know, maybe I don't have enough clients. It's never going to work out because that's where we go to. It's not going to work out. Who on earth is going to want my, my services? I guess maybe I better start doing something else. And, you know, the world gets more and more and more limited. What we want to do is we want to make it more expansive because it is expansive. That's so true. And uh, it's also a contagious thing, it seems like. If yes. I have an abundance mentality and and uh, I'm a consultant with a lot of clients, then I would be abundant in in turning some of those clients to other people and, and abundantly sharing my best practices. Absolutely. And I, I'm a really, really big believer. And um, I, I was working with Steve Chandler last year. He's, he's a coach in the U.S. And one of the things I really learned from him is the way that he gives service to his clients. And I learned so much. It's fearless giving. Didn't matter what was going to come back. It was just as fearless love and giving, and it was like with an open heart. And again, giving, giving everything you have without, I mean, not financially or physically, but giving, giving what you have in terms of your wisdom, in terms of, you know, maybe helping people out with some coaching or, you know, just sending them a book because you know that that might really help them or an audio or a, or a video it, and, and just serving openly i mean i think it impacted me in every way Hmm. because you know your abundance it doesn't matter if you give things away because you know that more will come it almost like a renewal more will be will be created yeah is it and the neat thing too it seems like um about uh, abundance is that um Abundant people aren't fixated on tangibles either. It doesn't seem like they're 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 like a Gandhi gathered his power by knowing that he was he wasn't attached to anything. Yeah. And um, yeah. like a, a Christ and a Buddha, these people would they understood their power was in just giving away what every whatever they had is. I mean, I guess part of that is where and where our fear may come is when when we're so attached to all of these tangible things that we now must protect. Yes, and and I think it's when we live in that way, it's a very scary world we live in. When we're very attached and we feel that, that you know, we have to, you know, so almost like cling on to all these things we believe maybe define us. And, um, and I think part of it is, as you say, is letting go and being less attached. Now, I'm not saying that you can go from super attached to 100% detached you know, in the next couple of days, but you could be 3%, 5%, 7% less detached and, you know, less attached, sorry, and practice that. What would it be like if I was, you know, that little bit less attached to what I think, uh, I, I, that I think, you know, I need to be attached to? And maybe it has made you feel safe over the years, but we can let go a little bit. And then see what that feels like, and then mm. let go a little bit more. 
No, absolutely. We're speaking with Michelle Atias from the website michelleatiascoaching.com. And we're talking about an article that she wrote on medium.com, Lead with Abundance, Not Scarcity, uh, really about this idea of an abundance mentality versus the scarcity mentality, where you attack the world seeing that there's abundant opportunity, abundant resources, abundant um, experiences and good that is there instead of being so fearful and scarce-minded. What uh, suggestions do you have for us, Michelle, as to how we can with our families, with our children, how we can start to foster this abundance in our family and then with our children at at younger ages? I think, uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to language. So be aware, first of all, the kind of language that you're using, especially around children. I mean, I have two daughters myself, and I know over time how my language has changed with them, has impacted them. So being aware of whether the language that we use with our kids uh, describes a, a scarcity, an anxiety, there's not enough, we can't afford it, you know, let's not give too much, as opposed to an abundant, open uh, kind of, you know, the, the words that we would use. So it's, it's, it, so being aware of the words that we use, um, how we show up, you know, how we... Oh, and for some, for some people, they might need a bit of help with this. They might need to slowly begin to let go of all those things they're attached to. Again, this isn't something that you can let go of overnight. Mm. But it's just a, a better way of living. And, and as I said, you know, this is something that affects relationships because we become uh, less attached, to, you know, in certain ways and in, in healthier ways. We become perhaps more compassionate, more giving, more understanding to our kids, to our, you know, to our partners, um, also knowing that they are enough, that there's more. So, you know, whether your child comes home from school and they're disappointed that something didn't work out, you know, reframing that and, and, and you know, sharing with them how, of course, they can do more, of course there's more, and with our partners as well, you know, releasing that fear and bringing more you know, of, of an openness and, and, a, and a feeling of having it all, you know, that, that will release that, that, that scarcity and that, I guess, that fear mm. that can sometimes really, really paralyze a family. No, that's so anyway. good. I agree, Michelle. And I think it's such a powerful, uh, powerful, uh, you know, beginning paradigm as well. Uh, Michelle Atias, thank you for your time, your great uh, insights there. Again, the website is michelleatiascoaching.com where you can get uh, more information about all of her work, her coaching, and her blog. Also, uh, you can go um, to medium.com and find her article, Lead with Abundance, Not Scarcity. Awesome insight, folks. Straight ahead, a little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner welcome back friends uh yeah you know you think about life and a lot of times you don't think about how you think about life you just we're we're all so automated in our thinking that we never really evaluate it and so one of the interesting things about getting into the fact are you an abundant mentality like, do you do you evaluate your impact um, and your ability to give by simply what you have? 
Or when somebody needs something, do you just immediately step toward that person and know that we'll find something, we'll figure it out? And Or do you just, oh, I, I can't give because I don't have cash or I can't give because, you know, I'm not in a place to do that. Every single one of us has something unique and amazing and impressive, honestly, that we could be offering the world. And the abundant mentality just simply allows us to start seeing that there are other solutions. A great uh, example that I've seen, it happened just recently as I was sitting down with clients um, – where, uh, a, you know, a, a daughter was getting uh, married. She has a, a man in her life. She found him as she was away from the family and, you know, found this great guy. Well, the parents don't like the guy. And, I mean, by the way, I get this example so many times a month, three or four times a month. I will have parents call me saying, we've got to figure this out. I don't want her to marry this person or I don't want my daughter to marry this guy. Um, But in the end, what happened um, is they come in with this dichotomy where it's either they marry or uh, they don't, either mom and dad win or uh, I win. And in the end, what I found is why dichotomize it? Why is the choice an either or? Why aren't there so many other ways that we could look at this? And um, for example, what we could talk about is – how can we help mom and dad understand why this person is so powerful and awesome that you want to marry him? How do we, as mom and dad, relax and recognize that if your daughter is going to make a decision to bring someone into the family, that um, it's going to happen? So at some point, you're going to need to understand, care, love, and allow people in. And why not start that now? But part of it is because we have a scarce mind, a scarcity mindset where, well, I've only got one daughter and uh, this isn't the guy for her. And so when we start with the scarcity mindset, then all we can have are scarce thoughts. And then all that creates are scarce, fearful feelings. And then from this fear, fearful feelings, all we can do is act out and be angry and, you know, do everything we can to stop the relationship. And then what we're becoming is someone that's angry, small, petty not who we want to be in life. And that impacts what we're becoming. And then what we're becoming over time reinforces our thinking. Life is short. I'm losing my daughter. Now my daughter won't even talk to me. Obviously, it's this guy's fault because the guy, uh, she used to always talk to me until the guy came around. But there is abundance. And abundance doesn't mean that it always goes the way we think it's going to go. But abundance means I can love you. I can understand you, I can care about you, and I can also choose to listen to my parents and and take in to the fact that they have a whole, a whole other view here. They're seeing things I'm not seeing. Abundance might say that we don't need to hurry and get married, but maybe what we ought to do is slow down the process and get as many people on board as we can. And uh, abundance would say that we all ought to give it a fair try. And um, on and on and on. But whatever we start with, whatever paradigm we begin with, abundance or scarce, is going to set up how you play out the entire situation. And it will amazingly self-fulfill and either create more abundance in your life or more scarcity in your life. It may not, by the way, be the life you thought you were going to have. That's the amazing thing about 
being abundant is you may realize that I didn't even know I had all of these other resources at my disposal, and now I can use those. And it may be a richer life, different than you thought, but richer in a variety of other ways. So just know abundance is a part of everything we do, and it's natural, and it will create over time, I believe, a healthier effect. I think I think your God has abundant ability and resources, right? And so if that's the case, then as human beings, the more abundant we can be, the the better off we can be. It doesn't mean, too, we still can't have you know, um, boundaries. It doesn't mean we still can't have rules because we can. And inside of those rules, there are an, a, a plethora and abundance of solutions that we can still institute to, uh, to make change happen and make things happen. Anyway, powerful stuff, folks. Abundance versus scarcity. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Hey, as we wrap up uh, hour number two of the program, let's get to another empty news headline with Jeff Simpson. Have you ever had a pet? Yes. Dr. Matt? Cute little buddy. Anything ever happened to it? No. Really? Well, he used to get a, you know, he'd jump off the couch and hurt his back. Okay. Well, that's not so bad. (laughs) Imagine, uh, well, don't imagine you're a dog, but imagine you own a dog. Okay. And you watch it be snatched up Mm. by an eagle. Wouldn't that be the most horrific thing? No, that would be horrible. Well, it would be more horrific if it was the eagle eagle. taking your kid. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's what happened. There was an eight-pound, how do you, what, I'll just say eight-pound dog taken by a hungry raptor Tuesday in Pennsylvania. It seemed like something from the Wizard of Oz. Even more astonishing, Zoe would live to bark the tail. Zoe is the name of the dog. Yeah. Rodriguez said he was by himself at his sister's home in uh, Bowmanstown, and Zoe was playing in the fenced yard when he heard a loud screech and hurried to the door. There was flapping of wings, and then it was gone. That would be crazy. Uh, He drove around the neighborhood looking for the seven-year-old dog to no avail. He assumed Zoe was gone for good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good assumption. Little did they know their dog would be found later that afternoon a full four miles away. Uh Uh-oh. Zoe's rescuer was Christina Hartman, who said she was driving on a snow-covered back road when she spotted a furry white lump ahead. I noticed this little frozen dog, icicles hanging from all over. Oh, no. They could hardly move. She wrapped Zoe in a blanket and took her home, feeding the dog two bowls of chicken and rice soup. Hartman noticed several small wounds on the back of Zoe's neck, and the dog walked with a limp. She had no collar. Hartman spotted Newhart's public Facebook post Wednesday morning and returned Zoe. She doesn't want to go out, Newhart said. I really can't blame her. Amazing story. The only thing scarier is if that were to happen to one of your kids. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Wow, cool. And good to have heroes out there. So, hey, watch your little dogs. Watch your little dogs. Eagles are everywhere, including the Super Bowl. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. More fun on The Matt Townsend Show.